Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jacob Marley is dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the podcast you are about to listen to. Come sailing in on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day in the morning. So sorry I was a little late getting to the recording session, John. Um, so as you know, my brother is in from Iowa with his family. Uh, mm-hmm. And I got, of course, my, my, my other nephew that was over. So I had my two nephews and my brother here. And we were just hanging out playing uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge on Xbox. Yeah. And it was four people playing. And when you have opportunities like that, other things must wait. And... You, you, uh, this podcast had to wait for that, John. So I am sorry, but like I learned in today's movie, sometimes things have to wait and you have to, you know, you have to take stock of things and really look at things from all the angles and not just be so, you know, blind and cynical. Uh, um, like we will review today in this episode of the podcast how you doing john i'm i'm great i'm great james uh yes this is uh jacob marley is dead a podcast where we wait for the opportune moment and also we talk about a christmas carol i am your golly what do i even want to say here ghost of the 20th century charles dickens past uh john newman and i am his sidekick jimmy and today we are watching 1964's Carol for Another Christmas. How you doing, John? I I had like an experience with this movie, James. Dude, all right. So I sat down this afternoon around like two o'clock, right? Knew we were doing this tonight, and I was like, all right, I got plenty of time, not just to quickly watch it right into the podcast, but to sit with my thoughts and. Within 10 seconds of this movie starting, I was like, I don't know what I mean. Sorry, we'll get to it. Like, really starting, right? Like, I was like, oh, there's a tone here that I I can get behind and I'm in for. So let's go. Yeah, that tone does come to us courtesy of just huge personal favorite of mine, uh, writer Mr. Rod Serling. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. 
who everybody knows. If you know him, you know him from the Twilight Zone. From being kind of like the 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 writer on the Twilight Zone and the he would start and end every episode or most episodes. I think every episode. If you've been on the Tower of Terror ride, right, which is Twilight Zone themed, the narrator character, that's him. Yeah. Um, but also just like in the 50s and 60s, a just huge, um, a huge figure in terms of kind of like speculative fiction, especially on film. Um, we have him to thank for one of James and my favorite franchises, Planet of the Apes. Um, yes. And then, of course, The Twilight Zone, which I, I'm a huge fan of. And I will say this. I think that people... I think the layman remembers the Twilight Zone as like, oh my gosh, it's William Shatner and the and the guy on the wing of the plane. Oh no! Or it's like, oh yo no, the lady has a normal face and they all have pig faces. Ah, it's so weird, right? And what people forget about the Twilight Zone is that it was also like some of the most cutting political and social commentary of the day there were things that he was doing or saying on the twilight zone that were just shaving down directly to the bone of issues that were like really affecting people and delivering it through this kind of science fiction speculative thing and i would say that this feels to me like an episode of the twilight zone one it feels like one of the better episodes of the twilight zone if i'm being totally honest this feels like the twilight zone christmas special like they mm -hmm. got a big budget for one huge Christmas special and they did it and they not like, what are we going to do? Okay. Well, we're going to do a Christmas Carol. All right. What's a twilight zone Christmas Carol. This. Yeah. Yeah. And it, there's a lot that goes into the twilight zone, right? Like what you're saying with like with the messaging of it, right? Because these were serious topics that they had to do in the sci-fi, like, like mask right because if they they weren't really there was there's a lot of gatekeeping a lot of code back then mm. right so they had to say a lot of things in a little bit of a different way and the surreal was a great way to get the message across right make it more fantastical more sci-fi more what have you um this it is fantastical we'll get into it but it is pretty much the real deal, man. It is just, it is just full on. Yeah, yeah. It is, ex it is the cold-hearted truth of a topic and a way of looking at things laid bare. And it is, John, I, I can't wait to talk about it. Let's go. I'm, I'm very excited. So this, this um, special comes to us with a really kind of interesting pedigree. So it's not an episode of the Twilight Zone, despite the fact that everything about it from the writer on down feels like the Twilight Zone. It and the cast actually... of characters feels like people that would be in an episode of the Twilight Zone. Like 100%. These... Yeah. I, it is a like, rogues guarantee... gallery of 60s actors. Like, I can't guarantee that. Like, I'm not too familiar with the Twilight Zone. I appreciate the Twilight Zone. I've seen a lot of really great episodes over the years, right? I think I'm not as familiar with the canon as, like, say, John would be. But... I can recognize the quality of actor that would be contemporaries with like, um, oh, uh, Burgess Meredith. Like, like, yeah, I like yeah, 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 yeah. this is mm -hmm. the type of people you would get. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So this is actually part of a uh, series of films funded 
by the UN in partnership with Xerox. Like Xerox was their kind of like corporate sponsor for this, right? But the idea was that the UN is like, you know, it was a an uh, interesting time to be alive in the 1950s and, and early 1960s for various reasons, which this film will go into. And I think that the idea was that the UN wanted to present like a almost like a a film series justifying their existence to the rest of the world. Like here is why this globalization and and communication between nations has to happen. And with that context, I just want to say timeline wise when this was produced cuz nothing exists in a vacuum, right? This is 1964. Only 19 years since the end of World War II. Everything this if somebody was born right at the end of the war, they would only be 19, like the very young people growing up in this new world order. I think this is really that's a big factor when you take into consideration that not only the UN produced it, I did not know that fact at first. Um, but also the message that comes across in this film. Yeah. Um, where are we? I might have to edit this so I don't sound like a real dummy. Where are we in terms of Vietnam with 64? So Kennedy already sent over a couple of advisors, if I'm not mistaken, in the early stages of like 1963. Um, there's, I don't know what the plan was before the assassination. I do know, however, that LBJ was advised after the Gulf and Tonga incident in 64 to uh, escalate uh, Vietnam, which I believe was, I'll have to look this up, but I believe that wasn't in the winter. I think that was more in, if anything, the spring of 64. But I could be wrong about that. So the timing on this is interesting. It's right? War is in the air. And it is, and like I said, 19 years, 20 years, that is definitely, there's definitely uh, a thing to note there. When it comes yeah. up again to what they're saying in this film. Yeah. Um, so that that kind of places it in history, right? It was right. directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who this is the only thing he ever worked on that was for television, right? And I think one of the like one of the few, if not only things he ever directed, he was a big writer and producer. Okay. So he co-wrote Citizen Kane. Uh, he was the producer for the Philadelphia story, among other things. Um, so like there's there's cachet there, right? That's a that's and, a high pedigree. Yeah. We're looking at a cast that includes for starters, Sterling Hayden plays the lead. He's our, he's the Scrooge for this. Um, if you don't know him from anywhere else. You know him from The Godfather. He's the the crooked police captain that breaks Mike's jaw in the first Godfather movie. How's the Italian food in this restaurant? Good. Um, <laughs> then you have, of course, Peter Sellers. This is his first role after that like big heart attack. Talk. Well, we'll wait. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> You've got Pat Hingle. You've got Robert. Doll's eyes, Shaw. Like you've got some really like the scenery is getting chewed in this particular adaptation. But everybody's come to this buffet. Like everybody is ready to feast and just 
we got something to say and we are going to say it because in and again this makes sense to me the stakes are that high for them and what they're saying and what the messaging is like I, sure. I just looked it up. The Golf and Tongan was August 2nd, uh, 1964. This okay. was a Christmas special, so it was being made probably right before it. A war was in the air. It was either about to happen or it or would it be after, right? This would be the December of 64. Right, but like I'm saying either we were just about to send more troops or the thought of it was in the air. Like, right. like the incident had just happened. Like, yeah, this is it's a year after Kennedy too. Like yeah. It's yeah. still raw, probably. How could it not be? So it is a, this is a moment uh, in history. It is. And what's crazy is it played in 1964 and disappeared. It just, it for 48 years was not played until Turner Classic Movies picked it up in 2012. 2012. How crazy is that? That this went unplayed that long. That's how easy it is still to this day and age to lose media of this caliber. All right. It would have just been a blip on their IMDb page, a lost thing, like some of those Lionel Cheney uh, Burt movies, like uh, Murderer of Something or Other in London. But like here, like the talent, the message, and, and and the sincerity of the of the person who commissioned it, right? The UN, like all the factors involved, right? Yeah. And it was it was gone, right? All those things it was gone. Nobody saved it for the UN. Nobody saved it for their uh, for their careers in any way, shape. There's no studio protected. Xerox, come on! I thought Xerox would have made some money off of this thing, but no. Apparently, they couldn't make a copy of it. Absolute bananas. Um, and I mean, it existed somewhere. It just didn't get played, which is so crazy to me because we'll talk about this as we get through the plot. I felt like you could put this on television today with almost no changes and have something still completely relevant in everything that it was saying. Like, what, cra like almost as relevant as it possibly could be. There's the, I don't, I've, I was watching something a while ago. I think it was Red Letter Media. And they basically had this line where they said, they don't like how people say things are more relevant today because they were as relevant back then as it was ever because the struggles are always going on, right? There's yeah. always been uh, strife in the world. But I think what is comparable is how we have a moment right now, I feel like, in history of a high anxiety, you know, the 70s malaise type of thing, this weird anxiety after Nixon, I'm sorry, after Kennedy going into Vietnam. Like, we are at that, we feel kind of like that, that moment, whether or not it's at that level, really, but we feel that way right now. And that's why I think you're right, John. You could put this on TV tonight and it would, work as a piece of art and message yeah uh do you want to talk about it uh, dude <laughs> <laughs> let's go let's go this is jacob marley is dead and we are talking about carol for another christmas was in those ships all three on christmas day on christmas day and one was in those ships all three on christmas day in the morning 
do I want to talk about? <laughs> uh so we open on um like a gotcha they they trick you a little bit with this <laughs> opening because it's all these classic like victorian era paintings of young children playing in the snow and ice fishing and the little quaint cottage it's really really setting you up with like the recognized imagery of a christmas carol before it's like and now here comes the other shoe dropping right here you get the sense that you're about to watch a made-for-TV Christmas Carol special that is of high quality, but a made-for-TV Christmas Carol in 1964. And then when they pan over and it's that building, right? Like that more modern building and you see a car. The car is like modern times. <laughs> like yeah, that's the yeah. final, like, yeah. no no fans or butts. Um, you're like, whoa. And then we just get this hard transition into into the mansion which looks like a cutaway from Batman. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. It's complete it's, it with might, Butler. It, well, we do get a Butler. Uh, Charles, I believe his name is, right? Or Clarence? Yeah. It was Charles. Charles, yeah. yeah. Charles, who's bringing something to uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Grunge? Grudge. 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 This is Grudge, this is fun. So I I saw I saw someone quote this on Wikipedia from like another article. They originally were going to have his initial be um, his first initial be B, so that his full name would be B Grudge. But get this, there was there was uh, there was some controversy over that because people thought that they were trying to make fun of Barry Goldwater. <laughs> Like that's a stretch. Oh. That's a stretch <laughs> at best. That's a stretch. But but here's the thing. Here's the thing. He was a radical candidate at the time. Like sure. honestly, he was seen like something kind of we'll get into later on in the episode as a demigod and it was so off the norm. And people could try see I could see people trying to go for that. I could understand that. Sure. And um, this is actually right after what? When did this get played initially? Was it right after the election? And wasn't it? I some. I mean, around Christmas. I'm assuming in the in right 64. because this was sixty four was an election year, so LBJ had just been reelected too. Right. Wow. Barry would have lost that one. Yeah, <laughs> he did lose that one. Yeah. Yeah. Not not great for him. Um. So I this character Charles, this Butler, is our Cratchit. It seems yeah. right. Or as close the, as we're going to get to a Cratchit in this, to be totally honest, that's that is not a that's think, not an element of this piece necessarily. And I don't know that it suffers for not having that be no, a stronger this element. Is, this this is. And we'll get into this as we go, but I just want to stay in the beginning. This is as close to as a modern retelling of a Christmas carol. But just because it is a modern retelling of it, or a mo- like the what the hope it was trying to instill, the original one, right? Novella. This is trying to match that, right? Mm-hmm. And just because it's trying to do that, it doesn't need exactly every beat from the original. It doesn't need Cratchit completely. It doesn't need everything to be one-to-one. There are some one-to-ones, and we're going to meet one of those in a second. Yeah. So um, 
we we right so this butler is kind of like bringing i think it's like a tea tray or something like that or coffee um through the house and you can see that he's kind of like a little bit uncomfy right there's a there's a an illies that hangs over this big big giant house and then we see our scrooge so this is sterling hayden as daniel grudge who is in a room alone He's listening to an Andrew Sisters record, right? They're singing Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree. And he's looking at this kind of collection of war medals on the wall, right? And we're going to learn a little bit more, I think, about who these medals belong to later on. But he's definitely, like, having some kind of a dark night of the soul at this moment. You can just see that he's in a place of sort of an emotional suffering, and he's very hard and cold. And, and it's as the season gets, as it gets closer uh, to uh, Christmas, the middle of the season, it definitely feels like it's been getting amped up and worse. Yeah. Right? Like you can just yeah. get that vibe kind of. Yeah. And we will learn why like this night in particular for him is kind of a thing. Um, right. So this, the we get like the spooky pretty quickly with this because he turns off the record and he goes out of the room. And mm-hmm. as soon as he's leaving the room, the record starts playing again. And then it gets stuck for a second on the like until I come marching home line, which is at the, kind of the end of the chorus of that song. Right. And then when he goes back in the room, the record stopped and the needle's not on the thing. Right. And it's just a little brief moment to be like it. You've you know, you've you're entering another dimension. <laughs> this, this is point. a haunt. This is a haunted house. Yeah. You are in a haunted house. you ready to get spooked. Because it's going to happen quicker than you think, actually. And yeah, for sure. Better for it, man. Yeah, for sure. Um, so he goes downstairs, and nephew Fred is there. So we get Fred. Yes. Fred Fred is here, and Fred is a pretty pivotal character. Like, the what's interesting is, I feel like in the original Christmas Carol, Fred is there to represent, like, the the most idealistic vision of what the meaning of Christmas is. Right. Mm -hmm. As opposed to his uncle's cynical vision. Right. And then Fred is not necessarily like pivotal to the rest of the story because the story really becomes about like the needs of people, needy people and wealth and all that kind of stuff. His argument with Fred in this particular version is the inciting incident. This is the conflict that drives this story forward. It's it's the thing you would do if you're writing a sequel to A Christmas Carol, right? You take the established elements of the original one, right? The structure that we'll get into in a little bit, right? With the spirits. But you then take the things like, okay, what could I improve on? Okay, the Fred character. Why don't I use Fred as, since he is the advocate for the holiday season, right? Why don't I make him the advocate for the argument of this new piece and really center it, like you're saying, all around him? It's a great choice. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So the the setup that we get here is that Fred is some globalist Democrat SJW, <laughs> bleeding heart, whatever, right? That's the way he's kind of characterized by grudge. He's a pinko um, commie, man. <laughs> yeah, he's very, very on the edge. He's an academic, right? He works at a college. Um, and he's been trying to set up some kind of like a, an exchange program with professors from other countries, right? So basically, an exchange of knowledge will open up lines of communication in academia. Maybe that opens up other lines of communication. We also get like 
the impression that this is the latest in a long line of kind of long shot causes that he has thrust himself into that he's always kind of looking for opportunities for outreach and to try to better the lives of the people around him right he's been he's an advocate for some sort of downtrodden groups but then also like uh some people like uh, who are trying to like there's like a child murder or something like that very um What's the lawyer in art in uh in a mighty wind? Oh, I don't know that one. Okay, you were in a mighty wind. Inherit the wind. Inherit the oh, wind. The, I'm sorry. I've, I've been making quite <laughs> I got you, I merry got you, I got the past you, yeah. few days, friends. I apologize. Yeah, 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 yeah. I Inherit got the you. wind. The lawyer from Inherit the Wind. Yeah, uh, what is he that? Drummond is that him? Drummond, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's like he's he's like Drummond. He's always looking to do the right thing and be an advocate and help out where he can. And <laughs> this guy. Yeah. Gr- grudge. Okay. Played by the same guy who was in Dr. Strangelove. Okay. As Gen- General Ripper. Right. I want to say stoic, but presence. Oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. This guy just stands up, says, what what bleeding heart thing are you here today? Basically, right? Talks down to him like that, and then just goes argument for argument here in such a spiteful way. Yeah. So what we're gonna get throughout this piece is straight up like modern philosophical debate mm-hmm. in. Every single scene, every single scene is going to be grudge tangling with another person with whom his views on uh, politics, society, right? America's place in in the world do not align, right? Starting with Fred. Um, So what's essentially happened is Fred's come over to give him a hard time because it turns out that through the influence that he has grudge has shut down this program he's like no you're not bringing this polish professor in here right we have had i mean he he kind of alludes to like the red scare it seems like it seems like he's like a get rid of those commies type of dude um which that's only like 10 to 8 years old like right. that that's that, very fresh McCart- that's still a fresh wound. That'd be like right now doing something about the witch trials 10 years after that in Salem. Like, yeah. honest and true. Like, embarrassing. Yeah. Is there any, anything like January 6th related these days? Ugh, um, oh, gosh, yeah. And, you know, we'll learn about Grudge. He's an arms manufacturer, or he works kind of in that industry of manufacturing mm-hmm. missiles, bombs, the works, right? <laughs> Um, so obviously he's got like a lot of political capital and his whole thing is this, like, I'm going to be on my side of the fence. Right. And I'm going to shoot my bombs over that fence. If you start making a fuss, that's his thing. It's a very stand your ground kind of a situation that's going on. with Grudge. And he is solid in that he is because he's heard it all before. He is, there's yeah. nothing Fred can throw at him that he hasn't kind of already thought or had an argument built up against to play for. Like it's pretty rough actually. Yeah. Yeah. 
The way this scene goes is so wild because they have this initial kind of argument where like Fred's coming to him like, hey, why did you shut down this program? This could be like a really good thing. And he's like, listen, we can take care of our own. We do not need to open ourselves up to these other countries coming in here and like messing with our business. He's very isolationist. And then like he has this whole thing that's like, listen, you're always trying to help the needy. But if you if you close close the cash register, you're going to find out exactly how unneedy those people really are. Right. And that line is, uh, if they're going to die, they better go ahead and do it and decrease the surplus population. For sure. It's like one of many, because I feel like he says oh, so oh, many, he, just he, he, absolutely heartless, but wild things. Just, Grudge is just knocking them out of the park, left and right with Scrooge-isms. It is, it, it's a master class. Like, it's, it's yeah. something to behold. And, whew. Um, this wasn't the moment that I actually thought this that comes a little bit later, but I was watching this and I really started to think like, gosh, Rod Serling really was like the 20th century's Charles Dickens. Yes, this is kind of where that came from in my in my opening bit. Like I was w- listening to him and I'm like, this dialogue is not even necessarily like it's not subtle, like nothing about this writing is subtle. It is extremely straightforward and on the nose, but he delivers it with an eloquence and a poetry and a humanity that really, really makes a lot of it land in a really satisfying way. Like I'm sitting there watching this, taking down my notes and gasping out loud at some of the sentences that these guys are saying as they're going through this. It started with a line coming up that I will partially remember. And then it was a moment later on that I was like, damn. All right, like we're ahead. Yeah. Maybe not exactly that same, but like I could feel that connection. Like I was amongst, like this is, this needs to be played more often. Spoilers. Yeah. Like this yeah. needs to be on television every Christmas. Like this needs to be what we all are watching because the message lands so damn hard. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 I think I might know what moment you're talking about. <laughs> you no. Know, yeah. There's a yeah. lot of good, there's a lot of good. <laughs> It's true. Um, and then it looks like Fred's going to leave at this point. And then Grudge like goes in on him again. And he's like, consider this like a donation. Like, right. And that's well, where this kind of like idea of like the needy comes from. You only see a little bit of it. Right. But like Fred goes to leave. But I guess he had to go tie his shoe. Right. So he sits down before he gets his coat and ties his shoe. And that gives Grudge just that little moment. to right. Snipe. And get in there and just get like that. Okay, here's why you're freaking wrong. And that type of energy. It's insane. It's wild. And then it like we twist again because Fred stops and he's like, you know, it's Christmas Eve. And this is a hard night for both of us for the same reason. Because this is the night that my cousin, your son, Marley, died. (laughs) Right? And now we're filling in some of the gaps here. So Grudge had a son named Marley mm-hmm. who died in some war. Korea, I guess it would have to be then, Korea, right? What else could it be? It, it could, the timing it, it was could, weird. Well, he well, as we'll get into Grudge served, served in World War Two. Yeah. So I would have and he was to older fa- or it seemed like he was older. He Middle either died. So look, it's either one of two things. He either died during World War II or he died during Korea. That would or some sort of other military action where there was like some sort of one-off death. But there are definitely and there is a handful of those. Sure. But but I would those are the only options out there. And 
all the same, I, I guess an isolation um, opinion would make sense in some of those arguments, right? We, yeah. Depending on how you look at things or what point. Maybe Korea was like, why are there we fighting over in Korea? What's strategic? Blah, 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 and everything. I, I do think that's what it is because Grudge has this like real bone to pick with the government and with mm. people like Fred who are pushing for this globalization because globalizing does create conflict sometimes. And he's like, if you if if people like you weren't out there and this government wasn't out there getting involved in business, I don't need to be involved in my son would still be alive. And Fred's comeback to him is like, listen there's a deeper thing going on here than just like your beef with the government or you're like, you're trying to find these people to blame. You also set a, t- a place for him at the table every night. You haven't touched his room. Like you're holding on to him for you, which ah. is not necessarily like a great comeback, but it's true. It's him trying to b- break through the wall that he has built around himself. That grunge has grunge has built this wall to, He's hurting, and he needs to protect himself. Um, at least, that, and this is how he thinks he's protecting himself. What what he really needs to do is to heal, is to let go, yeah, and to grow from the experience and not be stuck in the mud here. But they they kind of end on I won't say amicable, but they end on you know goodbyes, you know. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely not like a this Scrooge is not a misanthrope as much as he's just a hard, emotionally damaged man. Right. Like, it doesn't feel like they have a bad relationship, but they're just like it's it's like the old Republican uncle and and the and the lefty nephew just at Thanksgiving. It's like they love each other, their family, but it's just going to be contentious. You don't understand the real world because I have lived a hard life and I have seen it versus you don't understand what is going on in the world because I have seen some things that you have not experienced. And those two arguments coming into conflict with each other. Yeah, there's so much here. I mean, like they really like stick their finger in the wound and twist a little bit because it's like. Um, you know, Fred points out to him, like, you know, the real tragedy in this is that this has to happen to anyone. And you of all people should have empathy for all of the fathers around the world who are losing sons and wars that we could prevent if we were opening up lines of communication. So they're like diametrically opposed viewpoints. Grudge is like, the only way to prevent this is isolation. And Fred's like, the only way to prevent this is globalization. And they're just right. diametrically opposed viewpoints all circling around their shared grief. And Grunge has this weird moment where he talks about, like, so what do you want? Just all of us to kind of be one sort of, like, swirling pool of mixed, like, kind of like a weird, like, like y- you know? like like It's never fully racist, but it tiptoes right up to the line a bunch of times. <laughs> it's Voldemorty. Let's just go yeah. there, okay? Yeah. Very Voldemorty. And it is, and... He goes, that is not at all. Fred goes, like, that's not at all. Like, I don't know what you're ensuing. I, I, it's weird how Fred has to, like, how he responds to that, too. It's, it's like, the 60s, man. It's, it's the, like, it's, it's the like early 60s. Fred, like, what's the problem with that, Fred? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Like, well, whatever. Um, it's, 
it's this weak, but there's definitely this idea from grunge of like we have to build the better weapons, the bigger weapons, mm-hmm. have the stronger defense, and that will stop the fighting because yeah. they will know that we're not crazy enough to use it. I'm sorry, that we that we are crazy enough to use it and don't mess with us, right? Like that's what you're saying here. And it's this that could be even another moment. That could even be another uh Scrooge moment right there. And Scrunch guy is being really developed well as our Scrooge, like as we go on. Yeah, his point of view is really complex because it's it's anti-war. But it's like isolationist and it's also like good fences make good neighbors. Like if I'm Mm -hmm. if if I have the biggest gun, then no one's going to mess with me and then I don't have to worry about my sons going to war to die. It's wild. But that's the point, though. To Dickens, the things he was saying through Scrooge would have been considered radical at the time as well. There were prisons. There were workhouses. Those were the socially government approved options. And right. to fad and to fight for something other was seen as radical. So while it's not the same element, right? It's still a progressive argument in another century. Yeah, that's the thing that this one does that other modernized adaptations don't do. They 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 bring the greed along with the story. Right. And they make it about that. This greedy man. It's just, you know, 80s style greed or like 2000s style greed, whatever it is. Right. The even like like um, Ghosts of Girlfriends past. It's like that one of like the attention of women, that greed for the attention of women, whatever it Mm -hmm. is. This one is not that grudge is not greedy. He's isolationist because this is a this is a, a globalization girl. <laughs> well, right. I mean, check the messenger. I mean, honestly, it's, yes. But it's not a. We'll get to it. It's the, it's a beautiful message, and and grunge has to be created. So you can't just have like a comical villain, because no. then. Because then again, who's the messenger? The UN is making a comical villain to justify themselves. You yeah, have there's to almost have... nothing funny about any of this. <laughs> right, right. This has to be as believable as somebody making this argument could, right? Like the best the best faith actor version of this argument has to be given here. And that is still hard and and terrifying by today's standards, but it definitely was not a unique opinion in 1964. Sure, sure. Um, they end the scene with this like weird contest to see who gets the best like pithy one liner to end the conversation. And Fred wins. He manages to squeak in like a Merry Christmas thing as he goes out the door. Um, you always win with and, Merry Christmas. And, yeah. Yeah. You can't. You have to remind people that this is a Christmas story every now and then. <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially well, the mu- this version. The music does a really nice touch of that beginning yeah. and ending of this movie. Uh, spoilers. It really uh, is a good bookend, and there are vibes throughout the film. Yeah, that this is set during Christmas, though the message is again. You could have argued the same thing with the original one, right? Like, it's yeah, just the, set- the Christmas is a vestigial element because we like we reflect upon our common shared humanity around the holidays, right? 
as we gather around the Yule log, we take stock of where we are. Yeah. Um, okay. So we get Marley's ghost here. Uh, and we're not getting like a whole visitation, which I was kind of worried about. No, no. We get one of the best subtle. Holy crap. That's how you do a Marley in a modern age. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's really cool. Because here's the Tell thing that me. I was worried about, right? I was like, okay, the, the way this has been set up, like a huge part of this is his grief that he's not dealing mm-hmm. with. And he, I was like, if they're going to make him sit down and like have a conversation with his son, his son's like, you've got to change your ways and stop building bombs. I was like, I'm out immediately. That's not going to work. So instead what they do, he closes the door, Fred leaves. And as he does, you just see Marley's reflection in the glass of the door. And it's weird because it's a it's a multi-panel door. So it's not definitely his reflection in the glass, but it's like him kind of like you see him very subtly. He's not moving. He's just looking. So there's your knocker, I guess, if you want to if we want to kind of tag things from the original text. This is your knocker scene. Well, and that's what's great about it, right? Like it's taking the best elements of the original text and just giving them a modern twerk. And since we don't. Door knockers are around in 1964. I was at my grandparents' house once, but like, it, it's not like this is like what's more like these double screens, like these little yeah. reflections. This is a modern day type of spooky thing, like right. seeing seeing somebody kind of in the glass, not yeah. really there, but oh my, wait, what? And then boom, and like it's gone, and then we cut right to the dining room. Where things take another spooky turn. Yeah, because he's sitting. So then he turns around and Marley's sitting at this dining room table, which has been a focal point. He's got this huge table, right, that's set up for one person's dinner. And like no no one else is allowed at that table. It's just him, right? Yeah. So And this becomes a focal point for several things throughout the rest of the piece. But they have Marley sitting there. Doesn't say a word. You see him for like a, a couple seconds and then he's gone again. And that's it. That's your Marley experience. I loved it. It was less is more sometimes. Okay. And this not since, oh gosh, what was it? The Seymour Hicks was the invisible one. Yeah. Seymour Hicks had invisible Marley. Not since then has a minimalistic interpretation been so knocked it so out the park, right? Like two shots. And some chandelier shakes here. And, and of course, the record thing maybe earlier could be tied into it. With less with less digits than I have on my finger. Right? We're like, you know, I, I got five. I only need four to count how many things we've done to spook me out so yeah. well here. Yeah. Awesome. Especially because all the music so far has been diegetic after the credits. Yes. Right. So it's all like very subtle. Everything mm-hmm. is very subtle. It's like a very... Um, I lost it. I lost the thought that I was going to have, but the tone of it is very measured. It's, 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 it's holding back. You can feel the tension in the air, right? Like it's ever present. Yeah. Um, so he goes into the dining room and Marley's not there and he looks up at this, there's this crystal chandelier that gets a lot of attention throughout, Mm -hmm. um, as well. There was no, there's never really a payoff on like why it's this chandelier. It's just an interesting piece, I guess. I I, I think uh, we'll maybe we'll get to this later on because uh, we have to. Uh, but I think there is some little tie-in with the chandelier. I think there's something subtle there. 
he's this like fog rolls in everything goes black and suddenly he's on this troop transport like a boat in the fog and this is our transition into christmas past right it's quick it is it just it's done these tiny little steps but when you're in it that you're suddenly in it and Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of beautifully done it's yeah it's and this could have been a stage production like you Mm -hmm. have just some very solid one piece sets for spoilers each one of the spirits and it is great we get the ghost of christmas past it's uh this is steve lawrence who it's like a like a comedian i believe he was kind of like a a comedy actor um yeah ain't nothing funny about this performance that he's about to give no this guy just brings the fire with every single he's like kind of dry witty he's got like quippy a little bit but it's not funny it's just that kind of like streetwise attitude sort of a thing it's got that if you've ever seen Stalag Seventeen, like the humor in that movie, like that, like that barracks type of soldiers humor, that added to that bravado, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he is wisecracking, but because of the context of what he's talking about, it's not that. It's fun. It's not funny. It's like it's cutting. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like it just it's like, oh, damn, man. Oh, out, d- damn, damn. And, well, and he's for sure here to like cut through some of grudges, like laced up tight, all American bullshit kind of like mm-hmm. he's there. He's there to bring him down to kind of a human level because this is he calls himself the ghost of Christmas past, but he also identifies himself as the dead of all wars, not just American wars. He is the dead of every war. He represents all of these men who have died. Going back as far as Waterloo, if it helps you, you know, like yeah. he is he, the dead of every war that has ever been fought ever. And the cynicism that comes with that is that's what it is, how worthless it is to die in a war, in a sense, like how pointless it is sometimes like and yet not like it's 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 all sides of that vibe of being a soldier that died in a war. This guy, like all ghosts are kind of like a lot of different vibes um, dealing with the situation of where they are. Right. And he's got this great cynicism, again, that just, like you said, every time Grudge has an argument, it is completely cut off in the kneecaps. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot here because Grudge is like, "Oh, I see. You're the you're the American melting pot, whatever." And this guy's like, "No, I'm the I'm the world. I'm the global melting because we're all equal in death, right?" Right. Um. So he there's there's like interesting stuff that goes on here right because like again what happens here is this extended philosophical debate about the nature of war and why countries go to war and the human cost of war um and you know there's there's very much this feeling of like well if we if we had just minded our own business 
and not gotten involved, then, you know, those men wouldn't have died. Right. Men like my son wouldn't have died, whatever it is. And he's like, you know, soldiers are suckers. These guys are suckers. Some guy 10,000 miles away rings the alarm bell and we all go out there to get killed for somebody else. Right. And obviously, like the comeback to that is, well, was your son a sucker? And he's like, oh, no, my son was a victim of a government and and of bleeding hearts like my nephew and, you know, his his whole routine. Right. Right. It's and the guys like this is a disease like you can't avoid this. War is a disease and we're all going to catch it. You can try to avoid it as long as you want to, but it's not going to happen. No, but he's there's and there's this argument coming up about how every 20 years or so, it seems like we destroy ourselves, right? Grudge is bringing that up. Like we're in this, just this stupid cycle and what death, uh, the ghost of Christmas past here is saying is like, no, it keeps happening because we don't do anything to stop it in between. We stop the talking. They bring up the League of Nations. They bring up like all these people that could have kept talking. And how that once the talking stops, that's when the killing begins. Yeah. Yeah. And and essentially, like Grudge is looking at kind of the gap between World War One and World War Two and saying, like, we shouldn't even have gotten involved in World War One. And we definitely yeah. shouldn't have gotten involved in World War Two, right? And and the ghost is like, listen, everyone thought what you were thinking after World War One, and everyone stuck their head in the sand, and they let Hitler, Hitler take Poland, and they let him take France, and they let him do this, and they let him do that, right? And by the time anyone had pulled their head out of the sand to do anything about it, this guy had already stomped all over most of Europe. And if we hadn't gotten involved then, then all of these boxes, because there's all, they're on this bo- this boat with all these like coffins with bodies in it. All these boxes, you know, these these people would still be dead. They'd just be dead on you know their home soil, right? It wouldn't have made and, a difference. And and just to give the visual, it's all these boxes have different flags from different countries, and mm-hmm. they're surrounded on the outskirts by standing uh, at art like at the ready soldiers from different eras of war we even see some romans in there at some yeah. points like it's all all any soul it, it gets the point it goes back to the very beginning as soon as one person said i'm gonna fight you for this the dead are here represented it's yeah it gives this ghost a lot more weight than even the the ghost of christmas past has ever had and the ghost of christmas past usually gets the bulk of yeah. the of the weight uh, she's shared because that's where you have to establish everything about scrooge but here it's just the debate and yeah i mean it's it's establishing the human cost of war is, is yes. really what this ghost is about right and 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 it starts off with like the military cost here so there's a moment where he's like, you know, they talk about grudge staying on his side of the fence. And he's like, the Atlantic ocean isn't much of a fence anymore. We've got ICBMs. We've got all this stuff, right? Uh, we can jump that fence in 45 minutes. You're, you're crazy. Right. And then he says, of course, there's the bomb. And it's like the elephant in the room. that yeah. Nobody wants to talk about that is always ever present we have created our own means of destroying ourselves. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. God, it's so good. It's, yeah, it's absolutely it's absolutely wild. The way um, he delivers it, it. There's so much. It's like taking everything in me not to just read every single line because oh, every single line in the scene is a it's banger. Poetry. It's yeah. Poetry. Yeah. There are there are quotes in there as as the ships are leaving, right? And they're going through it at some point. When does the ghost say the line about with all that we have done, all that we have created, all that we have invented, right? You think we could stop the problem of 18-year-olds dying? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's right about here. It's just right before they, they leave the boat, I believe. Yeah. It is. That's the that's the that's the truth right there. Like, uh, like why haven't we focused on that? Like, yeah. Why is Oh my gosh, that yeah. line. And a lot of the point of it is to be like isolation doesn't solve the problem because right. people are going to die in these wars regardless. You either are going to die as a soldier and then what ends up happening is like they're on these boats and then like Grudge looks out and it's kind of cheesy like they don't have the budget to show you all these thousands of troop transports carrying all these bodies into like the great beyond. So they just kind of talk about seeing them off the side of the boat. It's very stage play-y in that way. I kind of loved it because of that. I won't yeah. lie. The theater nerd yeah. in me was like, that is totally like how you would do it on a stage. But they sell the visual of these boats that never go anywhere. And yeah. they're on an endless loop through purgatory or the ether of the afterlife. And it just is so, so sad. It It just... <laughs> This isn't as cheerful as the original novella. No, it's bleak AF. <laughs> it's actually what it is. It is bleak, bleak, bleak. Because Grudge asks him, like, where do these boats go? And he's like, they don't go anywhere. And I, I think the idea being, like, it's sort of a commentary on this idea, like, people who die in war just die. People who die in war just die. It's like in it's like in Goodbye Blue Sky when you watch the blood go down the drain. It's that. There's 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 nothing else, right? So this doesn't mean anything. This isn't a symbol. They don't live on in our hearts and memories or whatever. They just aren't here anymore. Right. Um, and that's like the big thing that he keeps coming back to. And then because that's not bleak enough. They have this whole thing where he's like, you know, there was a a place where you cared about another country, a time when you cared about another country. And he's like, why don't we go visit that? Step through this door over here. Right. He gives him he gives him that. The transition is beautiful. Yeah. We just have to make sure that we let them know that we're not scared enough to use it. Yeah. Oh, don't worry about that, buddy. Everybody yeah. knows you're crazy enough to use it. Opens a door, bright white light. Yeah. Just in case it's not clear what we're talking about here, folks. Yeah. That the bomb, we used that freaking thing, and we're about to see the aftermath of it. I was like, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way they're going to go right there. It's the ghost of Christmas past. We're not even a third of the way in here. Let's go visit post-bombing Hiroshima. Let's just go with it. Because that's where they go. He takes him to Hiroshima, James. 
it's like something out of God with the wind, with like the burning of like Atlanta. It's like insane. Like, like it's actually pretty impressive when you think of the budget that this probably had. Honestly, yeah, yeah, it's horrifying the leveling of an entire city. How this one car, you know, it's a city. And they keep emphasizing that. But it looks like plains in the middle of America with nothing around. Nothing but flat earth and rolling hills, but with rubble and debris all on top. It's like the... And I, I it probably doesn't really hold a candle to like actually the actual visual of what this would have looked like in the immediate aftermath. But it apocalyptic doesn't do it justice the way that yeah. they have it set up here. I mean, it is haunting unlike anything i have ever seen on film it doesn't look real but that's how real it probably did look like without the gore and that's what they kind of say at this one point like they cleared it out you know they they they, you know they did a good job cleaning out real quick and i think the inference is there all the dead bodies you know all the skulls, everything. Like, uh, like, sorry, but like, that's what I we're don't think they're about. inferring anything. I think they straight up said it. Well, they no, but they don't. Like, it's subtle. Like, like when yeah. you cleaned it up. Just that there's some extra stank on there from the ghosts. It's just it's yeah. And then we get where they're going to. So we have Grunge and his. Um, I don't know what her rank was. She's a she's like officer. a she's a lieutenant. Um, yeah. Uh, she's a lieutenant. She's like a like a like a whack or something like that. And so there, she's driving him to like the last standing. I wouldn't even call it a building, but structure, because it only has like two walls, if that. Yeah, maybe like a th- half of a third. And he's like a commander s- at this point. So it's twenty years ago, right, um, nineteen forty. Uh, September, I believe, is when he's visiting a hospital. We hear a beautiful song being sung from the outside. And an actor comes out. A doctor. And describes what, what has happened to his patients. That they were school children. And that they heard the plane. And that they looked up. And that when the bomb went off, they were facing to the sky. And so they have severe burns to their faces. Or to say how the doctor said it when they were asking questions. They have no faces. The brutality of that line and the way he delivered it, you know, like it just, it hurt extremely bad and it was horrifying. And we don't take too long before we're in that room. Yeah. And <sighs> yeah, um, it, it's. It's bleak. I mean, this is, I think, the the bleakest moment. They definitely let it go early. That they're like, we just, it's in the past. Hiroshima has to be in the past. We're going to do it. Um, and it is, 
it is really, really rough. Um, no. It's really rough. I will say, though, because we've had different versions of A Christmas Carol that have dealt with very serious topics, right? Not that A Christmas Carol isn't about serious topic. I think the whole novella is very serious about what it's talking about there. And that's what we've been trying to say, actually, with this podcast. Um, but this is how you do really serious material, right? Yeah. Like This is how you do it. Like You don't turn away from it. But you do it in a way that is that the audience can handle to convey the message. That is the mission when you are dealing with this type of subject matter. And Rod is a is a Dickens. He he, he, he I I was sold for a long time that the dropping was necessary, which is something that is stated in this piece, right? Yeah. But I think this makes a pretty good argument as it goes on to say F you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not that long after it happened. I mean, no, no, this is an, it's an indictment. It really is an indictment. It's, 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 a, it's Ron say, saying probably what he wanted to say about it in the, in the biggest way. Like, okay, we're going to talk about the, this is for the UN. If this is for world peace, the biggest enemy of world peace is what we did and what we yeah. have created. And that's what our uh, lieutenant goes off. She enters that room and she can't take it. She, she, she can't handle it. And grunge kind of is a huge jerk here. Oh yeah. He, he, he's trying, he's working very hard to rationalize. In this moment, so past grudge, who were like, we don't really see like it. It we jump from kind of grudge watching it to him going back and actually experiencing it. And what he he says, some kind of nonsense. So like the girls, these girls who are the victims of the bombing, they're all laying Ugh. out on like the floor of this hospital. They're completely gauzed up. So like they really brace you for like, this is going to be some like nightmare body horror, like whatever. And it's pretty tame in terms of like the actual visual. They do that great thing where it's like your imagination is making it a thousand times worse. But that's how you do it. That's how you yeah. do it. So the audience yeah. can be ready for it and accept it. And process it, and it's master freaking full. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and then they're like, they're gauzed up, but also like in this like mosquito netting. It's just like the whole thing. They look like they're in like a spider's web or something. It's really, really haunting. And they're singing the whole time, right? And the he says something like, "Well, this is horrible for them, but like their children will." Like he has this slip where he's like, "Well, maybe like." Like these girls will like one day be mothers and then like their children will live normal lives. And it's like, uh, what, what are you doing? <laughs> like he even catches himself and is like, Oh my God, that's why did I say that? That's so crazy. The doc, the doctor who is awesome in this, by the way, yeah. amazing performance just goes, what the hell are you talking about? Like, yeah, yeah. Like my, it's, it's, it is. <sighs> This movie pulls no punches at all at no, no moment. No, no, no. And it is. And I think that's what I love about the Twilight Zone. No matter how fantastical any episode I've seen, 
it's very much like taking it like if this was really happening, what would the circumstances be, right? With the fantastical like an imp or some sort of alien or monster character there, right? Here, this all happened, so we're dealing with it kind of as it really happened. Like, yeah. And so the lieutenant, she she breaks down, she leaves the room, and Grunge is trying to like chew her out in a sense of being like, did you see enough burn victims in the war? And she's like, I saw soldiers. I saw soldiers that got burnt. And that was what we all signed up for. We all kind of expected. Not children, right? And she lays it out, which we've been kind of talking about, that the arithmetic of like an entire city, a hundred thousand people, right? More than the four years of like this, like this, like the civil I don't know if the ad numbers are completely right there, but like like these are huge numbers that we were able to take out in one with one bomb. How quickly could we just wipe ourselves out? Yeah, we could and, end it all in an afternoon, is what she says. Like And she's right. And yeah. it's I, I love it because we don't actually get that many uh, uh women characters in this part, in this in this piece, but they're all solid performances. Mm-hmm. And they all like they all have something to say or something to bear witness and speak through us as an audience or something. Like it's really wonderful. Yeah. She's our bell for this yeah. version, right? Yeah. She's the closest we're gonna get is this woman who this woman in his past who called him out on the because he is trying to do the math. He's like, listen, if it wasn't this, it was going to be like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Japanese, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Americans. Like, we had to do this. The president saw fit to end it now, whatever. Right? That is, And that is what the public was fed to and consumed and believed and bought into for years. And that was... The, that was the public line. That is that's what the general accepted opinion was. It, to not accept that was to be a contrarian. Was to be on the yeah. outside. Well, now I think, um, I think we're getting uh, hopefully enough distance, and uh, I think opinion is changing. Um, we end on this image of a kid, this like maybe like nine, ten year old. Um, He's a little bandaged up, but he's looking pretty rough and he's kind of like going through the rubble and he's calling. I forget if he was, is he calling for his sister? Right. But there's something he keeps saying. He's, he's saying their names. He's, they yeah. were students at the school. He's their younger brother and they were his two older sisters and they were at the school when the bomb fell, he survived and he's trying to find them in the rubble where he last knew them to be. And he keeps ta- he's put he's pushing a rock, trying to find them in the debris, and yeah. he can't move it. Or he's trying just to find them just by putting his hands to the rock to feel them through it or to connect with their spear. I don't know, but it's sad as hell, yeah. and it broke me. And grunge is. Worst attempt ever at bedside manner. Oh yeah, it didn't do me any favor. Yeah, because this kid who just survived the worst thing maybe humanity's ever done to itself with a single decision. I mean, you. I mean, that's like there's a lot of there's a lot of actors that have to be bad for a lot of other atrocities to happen, right? Right. 
there's only like a handful of people that had to make this decision and it was made right like and and so like this kid survives that and now he's scared of thunder like nobody's business because lightning proceed and so he sees the flash and he's like terrified that it's go- like the lightning goes off and he's terrified it's going to be another bomb and the general of the army that did this to him or whatever his rank is tries to comfort him and saying now now it'll be okay you'll be all yeah. right buck up now yeah give me a little smack on the ass and get out of here and <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like it's like this is not it bud yeah no no. Some, um, and, and to some real quick, they would have seen it as that. They yeah. would have at the time seen him as like, he did the right thing. That's his saving cap moment. Whereas I think Ron knew more than he was letting on with what he was saying there in that moment. Well, and the woman, the woman like kind of is like, she quotes, she quotes the Bible verse about like giving your enemy bread and, and whatnot. And then is like, you know, Good job. And she calls him out. She says, like, this is that was nothing. What do you what do you think this is? Um the I think like the capping moment for this. Well, number one, that I mean, I can't <laughs> the scene is so bleak that and, and it's so effective that I can gloss over these two things, but they struck me as really funny. Number one, when they first talk to the doctor, he comes out and Greg just like is like, Do you speak English? And then the guy in the most American possible accent is like, yes, I speak English. And then like later on, he's doing this kind of like affected, like I'm speaking English, but with a slight foreign inflection, like not an accent, just an inflection where it's like, okay, maybe that was thing one that made me laugh just to cleanse our palate from how awful this whole thing was. The second thing is where they park their car. You can like see the wall of the studio. Like, you can just straight up see where the wall is. And it's, like, a brief moment, but, like, it's a corner. It's not It's not even, like, a flat wall with a good matte painting. It's just, like, we'll get away with this. On, an, on a standard definition television, they probably would have been fine. But the HD version, it really doesn't work. Yeah. Still, still, it was, besides the, the edges, which, you know, yeah, not to not be silly, but true. On a television back then, you would have some round television, some weird yeah. screen layouts. There would be more of the uh, outskirts of the image cut off than normal, right? Or nowadays, you get a whole, you get pixel pixel perfect. Um, this is when I knew that I was watching something very special. Mm-hmm. This sequence, because to pull this off, to manage this tightrope and to get to the other side, um. And to juggle at the same time, like it, it's insane. And they they did it, and they said something. They continue to say something with the, this as we go on, but they they, I knew I was in for a very, very different Christmas Carol that um was that had already and was going to continue to leave me, uh, leave an impression on me. Yeah. Um, one of the last things the ghost says is a child is a child. Damn. He- heavy. That's heavy. It, it just, it's, it's simple, true, correct, 
direct truths, right? Yeah. Hit hard sometimes. And that's it. Just that a child is a child. Yeah. Um, and so after that point, he directs him into the next room and he's like, okay, I got, uh, you know, you have something else you need to see. You're going to go over there in that room to do it. Cause they're back on like the boat. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, are you coming with me? And he's like, oh no, I, no, he's pointing him into the hospital. Right. And right. He's like, I've already, I've already seen what's in there. And he's like, no, 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 this is something new. Something you right. need to see. Right. This is now. Right, he goes. There is now. Right, like, yeah. That's the. Like, I'm, that's the he, I'm then. That is now. That's now, and like that. That's perfect. That that's is, a nice transition. It's very nice. And he walks in, and we're in another studio. <laughs> yeah. And before we get there, oh, I think we need to pay our clerk. So stick around. Yeah, we do. We will be back. I stopped your half a crown for it. You'd think yourself overused, wouldn't you? Hmm? But you don't think me overused if I pay a day's wages for no work, do you? Hmm? Tis only one cigar, sir. It's a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. definitely had commercial breaks back then for a reason too like there was oh, definitely yeah. a palate cleanser like, my, like the dad was like i need a beer <laughs> yeah straight up straight up oh man so we uh enter he enters into the what was that hospital room with the girls who were the victims of the bombing but instead he finds himself in a dark room and the only thing that's lit is his big dining room table and the crystal chandelier. But now it is covered in a feast and seated at the head of the table is 1989 Commissioner Gordon himself, Pat Hingle, as our ghost of Christmas present. He gave us a signal. I knew him the second I saw that frame and heard that voice. I was like, there he is. I didn't know his name was Pat until I saw the credits, but I was like, there's Commissioner Gordon. There's yeah. the first Gordon. Oh my gosh. It was it was a Okay. We're gonna get into this. But I just have to start by saying holy crap. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This was like Hiroshima. I was like, wow, this is so awful. Like, like the, all the emotion was there. This was the moment where I was like, oh, this is, I'm going to be watching this again. This is something yeah. special. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, hot damn. Like, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to, Every time I'm a teacher, right? So I'm in these email chains where we have to share stuff occasionally, like share yeah. something that's progressive or blah blah blah. I'm like, I'm sharing this. Like this yeah. is yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I might show this to students. Like this is solid, like yeah. Oh man. Yeah, this is an incredible, this is an incredible sequence. So he the ghost of Christmas future, he's wearing like a silk shirt, he's got kind of a smoking jacket, he's got rings on his fingers, he is 
both he's like he's like Donald Trump rich guy. He's not classy. He is um, like almost classless in in the gaudiness of, of his getup and slovenly at the same time. There's a lot of contradiction going on with him. Like 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 Hugh Hefner with Jerry Lewis's face with <laughs> Nutty Professor remake, not quite that big body. Like he's like a big like a, a slightly stocky guy, but he's got he's a little bit of a glutton here, right? Yeah. But and but the costume, you're right, is so gaudy. The rings on the fingers, the cha- the jewelry, and everything like that. But it at the same time, extravagance of it kind of gives it a different error like a medieval vibe or something like yeah. that even almost predating kind of dickens like in a sense like going harking back which the ghost of christmas uh present was also doing right he's more old school than the period he was really into right um and he's he's pigging out he's he's he is enjoying this feast and he identifies himself he's like gotcha you froze for a second on me. You're good. Okay. Um, he he presents himself as the ghost of Christmas present, and it's kind of, he does it as a bit. He's like, I got this great title. You're going to love it. Ghost of Christmas present. How's that sound? And mm-hmm. then Grudge is like, okay, you represent it through gluttony. Is that is that what you're supposed to represent? And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Listen, I represent humanity. And I am both... Uh, eating because I'm enjoying the flavor of the food and I'm also eating because I'm starving and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm warm and I'm comfortable, but there's parts of me that are also very cold. So like he's living both of the experiences of, of humanity at the same time. And his personality is both warm and cold at the same time. Mm-hmm. It starts off a little subtle, but as it goes, the extremes are highly noticeable. And Pat just brings it to this performance. And as we go through it, Grudge is just kind of gobsmacked by what he's seeing here with the Ghost of Christmas Present. Yeah, and and he starts off combative, right? He's like, "Oh, I get it. So you're this is where you're going to talk to me about haves and have-nots or whatever." And he's like, "Listen, man, I represent the human condition. Some people live alone in a 24-room house, and some people are living 24 people to a room." And it's like <laughs> it's like you played yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's like, "Let me just pick this up and put this back in here." Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. Like, it's just like, you just keep dropping stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So what ends up happening at this moment is there's this great visual effect where they're still at the table and the table's still in darkness. But then you can see on the periphery of this room, it's no longer a room, but it is a barbed wire fence and and contained within this barbed wire fence in the snow, huddled around fires, are refugees of war. Right? Right. It's such a striking visual. Yeah. Because, like, you're in this setting, right? This big, massive void. And then, boom, you're there, right? You see what you... And then, as he's describing how they're all in the same barbed wire camp, right? Almost to say, and I don't say this lightly, 
but that there is always an ongoing like holocaust to a sense like mm-hmm. there's always there's always a group of people left out of humanity right yeah that are outside of the comforts that we have created for ourselves right they are the forgotten ones the ones that had to flee the refugees the homeless the forgotten ones and it is it's horrifying but grudge and maybe this is his save the cat moment is like how the hell can you eat all this food in front of him like how can you they're right there they're looking at you they're starving they're begging for food and you're having the time of your life on this banquet and this is the moment where the spirit's like sorry to disappoint you you triggered my trap card right (laughs) it was like gotcha (laughs) yeah yeah because basically what he launches into is this thing of like how many meals have you sat down to you how many times have you stuffed your fat face while people were living like this while people were out here starving and it's like oh you don't have to see it Right. And and he gets into this like out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Right. And then he he kind of t- t- starts talking to him about this idea of selective morality. He's like, how do you human beings do it? How are you able to just peel your morality off of you like a coat whenever it's convenient for you to not have to think about the way the choices that you are making affect people around the world? It's at this moment or around here. He grabs the tablecloth and just rips the banquet off the table. That comes a little bit later, but yeah. It's like it's, it's all of this tension is building up to this moment. And when he just rips it off and talks about how it's there, there's too much, you know, the portions are too big nowadays. How yeah. we are, how while the outside world is starving right we are getting fat and gluttonous yeah it's really incredible and grudge like tries to come back and he's like look look it's true like you know people we we have to compartmentalize and there are people in the world who suffer but like when we see need we respond We respond when we see need. When there's a need in front of us as human beings, we respond, right? And the crystal chandelier tinkles a little bit and is like, The lie detector determined that was a lie. And reads back to him his line from the conversation with Fred about like, if you close the cash drawer, see how needy these people really are. What a great line to be thrown back at him. Yeah, yeah. Had here has a force behind everything like that tablecloth moment we're getting to here like he doesn't back away from any choice he makes he fully commits yeah and every single time grudge comes at him he's like aha you've fallen further and further into my trap it's wild because grudge is like i was just talking politics like he tries to justify he's like look i was just we were just arguing about politics like everyone does it and he's like okay humanity is not a political construct humanity's real they're real people this is a real thing right and then grudge is like they kind of go back to to see the people in the camp and they're all singing these songs so like this is like there's a softer moment right and this is almost like the 
the ghost taking Scrooge around the world to see the people singing Christmas carols and the lighthouses and the coal mines and all that kind of stuff. It's that moment for sure. Right. Because it's these people singing these mournful Christmas songs in their native languages. Right. And you see people of every like race, color and creed in this camp. Singing songs that date back even before the creation of Christmas. Songs that are about the bond of humanity in the darkest of the year. Like the songs that we use to give ourselves hope. And which is, of course, what the season's all about. That's why I love this as this is the time, like we said earlier, this is the time of year for reflection, right? This is the time of year to seek out the best of us for to, to be redeemed, right? And grudge here. He can't take it, man. He is just, he's getting, like, every every retort he has, he just is gnawing at his own leg in the bear trap. Like, he's yeah. going to have to, that leg's coming off. And yeah. it's getting gnarly. And we haven't even gotten to my favorite moment of this yet. No. And you know, you know what it is, right? So there's this line here. I'm going to see if I can find this scene and, like, drop the whole line in here, just because people need to hear it. Mankind. In there, the hungry part of mankind, the anguished part, the dispossessed. If you shared a loaf of bread with them, how would you be relinquishing your freedom? Or if you joined other nations to administer vaccinations to their children, how would you have desecrated your flag? Or if you had offered them solace and hope and comfort, how would you have made yourself susceptible to tyranny? How has it hurt you to deal with this, to do something for these people, which is so powerful, right? And then Grudge asks, like, how many people are, are out there like this? He asks, he asks this question, like the statistical, because this is what he did. He rationalized Hiroshima. He's trying to rationalize again. And the spirit's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, my God, dude. This sequence, this blew my mind. I was like reacting out loud as I was watching it. Pre- Preza just said, hold my beer. Yeah. And goes to town on him. Yeah. He's like, oh, oh, that's it? Oh, you want stats? Okay, Bitch, here's some stats for you. On this earth, 13 million human beings have tuberculosis. There are 10 million blind. There are 130 million cases of malaria. Today, the present, now on the clock, and now on the calendar. Two-thirds of the world, Mr. Grudge, go to bed hungry. One half of the Earth's population, that's three billion people, actually suffer from hunger, from lack of food. Of these, Mr. Grudge, there are 100 million children. And he's like, let's, and we're not even going to talk about how many tons of wheat and how many tons of butter rot in government surplus houses, right? Let's talk about, and he just bam, bam, bam. Here's how many children are dying of malaria every year. Here's how many people are in refugee camps. Here's how many people are actively suffering from hunger. He lights into Scrooge unlike any ghost of Christmas present I have ever seen. Um, 
And we have had people who have done their novella pretty much verbatim or have gotten as close to, let's say, uh, say ignorance and, and want, right? Like we, yeah. they've gotten pretty close to that. This has accomplished what that spirit has tried to get across more than ever before. It's it's insane. It is. It's it's an all timer. It's it's seriously all timer hall of fame for sure. I, 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 I was left speechless at every choice, at every beat, at every way to pace the scene. The ghost just makes it work. And this is Rod Serling at his at his strongest, this kind of stuff. Right. I mean, this is this is an obsolete man. And especially considered, though, like this is present. Right. This isn't something that had been done that we have to reflect on. Or this is not, as we'll get to in the future, something that is a fear. Right. This is something that is ever present and daily. Day in, day out, we are wasteful. We are leaving the food to rot. We People are going hungry. One third of all that are hungry are children. It's the raw numbers and this and that and other. Bam, 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 bam. It's happening now. And we could be doing something now. And I think that's why the rage is probably the strongest. And the argument is in this moment. It's, 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 a, it's a vicious, vicious yeah. indictment. It might be one of the best things he's ever written. I, I'm not even joking. Like this, ju- just this excerpt of the special is the best argument he's ever made on any. Like this is amazing. And Grudge can't take it. Grudge no. runs. He he has to escape from just the, the stark reality. And one of my a really strong moment as he's running, he keeps coming up against these fences where he's like this rat in a maze that's been contained inside this barbed wire. Until he's totally fenced in. Which is what he's been arguing the whole time is fences. That fences are what we need. And then finally he looks up and the ghost of Christmas present has arrived. (laughs) It's Robert Shaw as the ghost of Christmas present. You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes. Like a doll's eye. When he comes at you doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. So I was on the lookout because I know that name anywhere, all right? Like, there are three names at the beginning of Jaws that you will never forget. He looked like the best guy at a Renaissance fair. Yeah. <laughs> and at first I was like, is this like the like the priest of the future or like is this like like what like a druid of like the app like this post-apocalyptic world because that's where we are in this moment we are in this the world has ended um uh and ra shaw gives the uh kind of the most honest and like best prediction of what the end of the world was looking like in 1964 he yeah. just goes about like, well, these people thought they were dropping bombs or these people thought they were dropping bombs. So we dropped some bombs or they dropped some bombs. And before you knew, we all dropped our bombs because everybody had bombs and we used our bombs. And this is it. This town hall of that, uh, you know, was the center of like discussion and debate and, and challenging of ideas to find truth. 
it's gone. Yeah, let's let's set the scenery a little bit here. So Robert Shaw is dressed as a monk. He looks like a kind of like a like an early Renaissance or late Dark Ages monk. Yeah, is sort of the, sort of his vibe, right? Which I I do think is like a a nod to the cyclical nature of these kinds of like like that's humanity has gone back to like maybe that level of of right. civilization. It was a nice little touch. And also, he looked just like the Irish guy from Braveheart. Well, do you converse with the Almighty? In order to find his equal, an Irishman is forced to talk to God. Yes, Father. The Almighty says, don't change the subject, just answer the f***ing question. Mind your tongue. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He actually does quite a bit. That's funny. Yeah. And where the, this whole scene takes place is in the town hall of whatever town it is where Grudge lives. So yeah. it's this very old, like it looks like a town hall that's been there since like the early colonial period, probably. Um, there's, there's actually in the background. Don't know if you noticed it. There's a burnt out uh, portrait of Abraham Lincoln. Oh wow, I missed that. Just, I saw the E pluribus unum in the window. Oh, uh, see, I, I didn't see that, but yeah, it makes sense being there too. Like, and 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 Lincoln is just there watching everything. Yeah, that's wild. Um, that's a real God. I love this. This is such a great special. This is such a um, this is such a cornerstone of the rest of my life. Like, yeah, this is such. I'm so proud of and happy to have found this now. This is yeah, this is great. Is yeah, it's a good one. Um, and essentially, what's happened is you know World War Three, and it's funny the way they throw it out. It's like even in 1964, it's like well, you know, it's World War Three. Which we I feel like even it's... today, it's been, you know, 50 years since this special came out, 60 years, and we're still like, I mean, it's coming. When is it going to be here? The assumption of that, if there is to be a World War III, a war of that scale would kill us all. Because yeah. we got so close at the end of World War II. I mean, this is what we all know. We all know yeah. this. And which is, which is so screwed up that it's just so, it, the thought from 64... Since 1945 till now, that's just the way it is. You yeah. know, it's hap- if it's going to happen, it's the end of the game. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And the setup here is like, well, you know, this meeting house has fallen apart and is destroyed. And it started a long time ago because people saw less need for debate and communication and for determining the best course of action and for talking because we all built these fences, right? I built my fence around me. You built your fence around you. The UN that collapsed right we walked away or they walked away somebody walked away there's a lot of uncertainty because in the aftermath it's like it's not going to matter right in the in the future we won't know and it won't matter because you know society will be destroyed and he's like but what did happen was everybody built a fence and behind those fences people were talking and they were stirring things up and before you knew it this is the situation we end up in what's interesting about what's going on with grudge here though is that he is dealing with all of his institutions falling apart, right? And even though he mocked the League of Nations, right? He's trying to have faith in the United Nations. And it's like, no, because that attitude you have there in the back of your brain that mocks it, even try attempt it, yeah, it's going to fail. It's gonna it's gonna persist because people that attitude is out there and it's gonna hurt us. Yeah, and it is kind of like exposing like that his his belief that someone else will deal with it mm-hmm. 
is is a false one. Like it, it is right. kind of like he's going to have to deal with it too. Right. Like because it's not going away because we don't talk about it. Right. Exactly. We can't avoid it. Um, what else we can't avoid is a crowd that gathers at this point. So like all these bedraggled fallout four looking people drag themselves in here. <laughs> and just when you think this movie can't just amp it up yeah. anymore. Holy freaking cow. Yeah. We get the mob and already I'm like, this is good. Like this is good post-war like yeah. mob. Like this is a good zombie mob. Uh, and then they bring in their leader. Give me a second here, John. The leader is carried in on a horse that four football players are carrying the supports for. And on the horse, as we get little snippets, as we cut back and forth from crowd shots to the entrance of the leader, we get Peter Sellers <laughs> wearing... Okay, this outfit's amazing. Yeah. I'll start from the bottom up. He's wearing cowboy bottoms. Like, his boots are cowboy boots. He's got jeans or... Cha- I think it's jeans, right? Yeah. He's got, uh, a, he's got a, a gun holster belt. Yeah, like cowboy, like six guns. Exactly. And, but, but then his, his top... He's a Santa Claus or elf tunic top. It's Santa Claus for sure. It's it's for sure Santa Claus. But it is not a Santa Claus hat. It is a made up, not real, like makeshift oversized cowboy hat with a speckled glitterized Big letter, Comic Sans print me on the middle of the top of the hat. Yeah. It is. And that top of the hat is also cut like a crown, right? Right. A little bit of crown. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And Peter Sellers. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. This is wild. So this is Imperial Me. An imperial me is the leader of the non-government of the me people. I, I have a lot of thoughts about this, <laughs> both positive and negative. I, I think that it's extremely on the nose. But I think it manages to work despite that. And a lot of that is Peter. Yes, for sure. Peter works that because there is an underlying darkness to this character that you cannot tell if he is just working the masses to get what he wants in the moment or, as we get to it later, he is a true believer 100%. And either one is a good choice, Yeah, but both are terrifying. You could kind of read it either way, and that's what makes it work so well. He's delivering this kind of like demagogy speech about how the people from over yonder and the people from across the river want to get together and talk and come to terms on our shared differences. And all the people in the crowd are laughing at this. Aha, obviously, that's ridiculous. So his whole bit is like, 
those people want to come in here and they want to take us over, right? They want to take away our sacred individuality for their collective gain or whatever it is. But they don't understand that we are a society of me. No one's above anybody else. We're all just me. Except that he was carried in on the backs of other people and he's like on a pedestal high above them. So like the irony is staring you in the face with this whole thing. And then like the whole crowd of these people who all believe so strongly in individualism are group thinking completely. But they believe it is all about them. There's this extreme push on this one woman who is this blonde haired woman who is just all in on it and she's pounding her chest and it is a great crowd shot it is all of them there are little performances you could go through this like five times and just find new performances out of everybody in there and it's great i was noticing that they never settle on any particular character like no one but imperial me really has dialogue in this sequence except for one other character that we'll talk about in a second but like each member of the crowd is a character is a is fully a character and of course, the irony there of what we just they're fighting against, but what they have, of course, have become, right? The mob, the group think. But then, of course, you put it against the, the characterizing of communism versus capitalism, right? Of that you, know, you are a, you, you're master of your own fate under capitalism, where under communism, the state and the government has complete control over you. You don't have a say in yourself, right? Like casting it in that bleak terms as this is the, this is the extreme argument of capitalism versus communism broken down to primordial like versions of themselves in some way, shape or form. I am almost certain that this has to be a reaction to McCarthy. I mean, it's how can it not be baked in on some level? I mean, like, for everything we do, unfortunately, from now until we're done, John, will probably have something to do with January 6th, 9 11, and some other stuff here, there, and in between. We are affected by the events that, tra- that give us all a collective trauma, right? And, like, yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm gonna say this. And I'm going to I'm going to preface it a little bit because I think it's very easy to say the thing that I'm going to say right now for just political situation that I disagree with. But when I when I say this, I mean this wholeheartedly. One of the reasons I thought, wow, this thing would be equally as relevant today is because this is literally just a Trump rally. Folks, I John is preferencing this. With the right context. And we get it. We understand that everybody says that about anything that is slightly political. Okay? But he's 100% accurate here. And I agree with him wholeheartedly. Yeah. Because it it is just a, a demagogue standing in front of a crowd in a stupid hat and telling them that the nebulous they wants to come and take away your individuality. And now all of you people wearing the same hat and the same stupid T-shirt who believe the same things, right, Mm. fight for your individuality. And there are beats coming up that just double down on that notion. But one of the visuals here is the microphone he's using is cordless, right? It's an old, like, watch Rocky or boxing movie, an old wrestling match. And there are the... um, ring announcer mics that drop from the ceiling that you hold the big shiny uh, silver ones he's holding one of those 
but it's cut off like a foot or so down from it. And so there's just this little cord that's just limping, dangling there. And it's it's such a great visual because he is a blowhard. He is a loud mouth. He is a con man who has no real power behind his words, but he's loud enough that he doesn't need a like but it's an addict. It's like it's really great visual storytelling. It, it's incredible. And it, it 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 gets better because what then happens is you have like the butler from the beginning of the film. You have Grudge's butler Charles appear. And there there was like some question earlier on about like how far in the future this was supposed to be. And the ghost was like cagey about answering Grudge's question. But mm-hmm. now we know can't be that far because it's that same guy he doesn't look that much older right he's there with a woman we presume is his wife well we find out who she is a little bit later and that still could be the same presumption they're at least they're at least intimate enough here where like they're trying to survive the apocalypse together and care about each other but he gets up and he's trying to say to them this is crazy like for all we know we're all that's left of humanity we cannot divide from other people we have to be united like we need law we need ethics we need humanity all these and he's just being mocked and laughed at and this was the point this was the other point where i'm like oh my god this i feel like i'm watching a trump rally because the people start like harassing him and grabbing him and trying to throw him out or whatever which feels very much like all those videos you saw protesters getting pulled out of trump rallies and stuff a modern version of this or a pre like 2016 version of this speech, which of course this was, but you know what I mean? Like in I, like in the nineties, you could see this in a speech and somebody would give it. And then at, there'd be no like heckling. The speech would be given clean and then there'd be booing or then there'd be added to like realignment there, but they let him get everything out. There was a politeness. There is no politeness here. There's yeah. like, like Peter Sellers is at the top of this like town hall, like almost where like a judge would be sitting, right? Or like a, and he's like just kind of giving like one of these, like the J off, like 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 look at this like guy like talking here, like boom, yep. like he's just allowed, like he's the he's the guy that wants to take away your right to be you, yeah. right? And you watch in his eyes. The butler's faith in humanity die. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I haven't completely had that look, John. I'm familiar with the vibe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Peter Sellers passed judgment on him. Um, So he charges him with treason of involvement. And what's interesting here is like the guy tries to escape and he's like, I might be the last like ethical human. I can't let you kill me. And so he climbs like he runs and he climbs up this like rickety staircase and then he's trying to find a place to go but there's no place for him to go he's like stuck yeah it's kind of more like so imagine like the corner of the town hall right and there's debris and scaffoldings that lead him to the top and so it's just like he's at the corner of a building with no way to get down at all because if he goes down the way he came they're gonna kill him Right, and they, but he can't and jump the, the other way because there's no way he survives like the jump out the window that's right there. The two-story jump, and I'm sure there's too much debris around to, for a safe landing. And before this moment, we've had a few quick shots of what I can only presume is Imperial Me's wife and son. We see this woman knitting 
Like she's expecting another child sitting in a chair and standing right next to her is a younger version of Mike TV. <laughs> I mean, yeah. which is the typical idea of a child raised on cowboy television in the 1950s. Yeah. And like we've we've seen them a couple of times. And as this scene plays out and he's up there, the crowd starts chanting. Yeah. Jump. 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 Do a flip. And he just looks at the madness of the world, the butler. And he's just like, this is it. This is what what the hell? I, I'm not going to jump. I'm not going to give in. But what the hell have we come to? And the little boy opens up. A box. Now, what did uh, did you write down? What the box had? It on said it? like just like daddy on it. Yeah, it was like that. And which uh, you're he, right, it is his son for sure. Right. Well, and we get that out in a moment. We get confirmation. So now he opens it up. He br- pulls out a six shooter. There are two in there. He brings out one of them, aims it at the butler in the corner and the t- up up there, and fires. Yeah. And he falls. And Imperial Me, Peter Sellers, gives the kid, his son, who we kind of learned because they have an interaction here, an okay sign, like, good old job, son. Like, you did good. Yeah. And the butler falls, and they all laugh and, like, yay! And it's like this horrifying visual. Like, from Hiroshima to this, we have just been upping it and upping it and upping it until we've gone we've gone macro with Hiroshima now we get very personal and yet macro at the same time because this is the downfall of humanity yeah it's a reflection and it's interesting because I think in in where we are now and I don't mean again like this is going to come off very much like Twitter lefty but like Mm -hmm. it is kind of where we are now Right. Right. In America, for certain, like we have a cult of individualism masquerading mm-hmm. as a political party in this country. Yep. Right. And this is what is happening. Right. You are laughed at for having empathy. You're laughed at for the idea of of like of seeing the world as like a place where we need to bring people together. Our young people are out killing each other and killing other people like we have regressed. minus the nuclear apocalypse. This is kind of where we're at. It hit very hard. I would argue this this ends the most perfect way it possibly can too. like the logical conclusion of this cult is that they're going to go kill the people from over yonder and across the river. And then they're going to all kill each other until there's one man standing. And we finally have a perfect society of just I. This is the ultimate showdown of ultimate destiny. (laughs) I'd like to have said I thought about that two hours ago, four hours ago when I watched this, but I thought of it just there as you described it again. But that is exactly what the plan is. Yeah. And if it was just a bunch of like wrecked post fallout people from New England or wherever this is supposed to be. Right. But the thing is. The gleam in the eye of Sellers here when he says the ultimate plan, the the final solution, the the real goal of the Imperial me is this slaughtering of each other. Again, he is either just 
maneuvering to kill the undesirables as he sees them, right? Either political or what have you, right? In a mass purge. Or he's full bought it. This is, this is not a character or like something like an act. He is all in on the Imperial me and his philosophy he's been preaching. And both are terrified. Well, again, it's like how many cults that we're going to see a couple of and then decades after this ending mm-hmm. in these suicide packs, right? That are all about the e- the absolute ego of the leader being able to say, I can get these many people to take their own life. This is how much power I have. Like, that's what it is. So it's super prescient. And it was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So the logical this is the logical conclusion. And then this little group is a microcosm of like a world in which individualism is put above all to well, it's the like those, detriment of the globe. Well, it's like he can't keep the lie up. Like all these cult leaders pose a certain point. The individual of me, right? Well, at some point, someone's going to challenge him on that. So like with these cults, at some point, the world's not going to end or the world is going to end. So the lie is going to end. Right. So they have to do the ego stroke thing. And and then they carry him back out on the horse. It's like, uh, okay, we, we all see who's really in charge here. And just to cap it off earlier in the scene when they're beating up the butler... And when as he tries to give the speech and Sellers just says, get off of him. He's had enough. That was the moment I was like, oh, this is a Trump rally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's that's the difference here, friends. Like that. Like he has said something like that or alludes to stuff like that. Like, yeah, we're not we're not playing with theoreticals anymore. People, there's there's live rounds in the gut. Speaking of live rounds, uh. So after this all happens, Shaw has this line about the logical aftermath of Hiroshima. So he brings it full circle. And because Grudge is looking at it like this is madness. This is this is like, how could anyone have let it happen? And he's like, what did you think was going to happen after Hiroshima? What else could possibly happen after we dropped the bomb? I'm going to drop that whole line in here, too, because it's another really great speech that like I feel like you're so existentially exhausted by this point that you could almost miss how good this last speech is, but it's very good. Victorial enough for you, is it, Mr. Grudge? Rubble and madness. Rubble and madness. I can't imagine why you're surprised. When the first bomb dropped on Hiroshima, the fate of man could have been predicted by a cut-rate gypsy. The ultimate garden of Eden. Planted by man. Cultivated by his weapons and irrigated by his blood and brought to fruition by his prejudices and his hate. And it's like he's like, as he says, like an average fortune teller basically could have seen this happening. And it's so like, it's not that illogical. People act like we're, it's gaslighting in a sense. Yeah. It's like, Gaslighting to think, oh, that'll never happen. We'll never end the world by dropping the bomb on each other. It's like, we have been playing a really weird game of Dungeons and Dragons. And we've been rolling 20s since 1949. And we've just been getting by on the skin of our teeth. Like, 20 roll after 20 roll after 20 roll after 20 roll. And, folks, at some point, we're getting single digits. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 
we we have we did and we will we like you can't you can't pretend that it's a never going to happen we have actively done it we've actively done it we've used these things before we have put them in place to be used we are making them as we speak making more because we need more because the other side is making more it's the big it's the butter battle book for god's sakes it's i will say this I didn't like the ending when I was a kid, but the message was as clear as the sun rising in the morning of the bettering of weaponry to, you know, and and just how escalation goes on. And gosh, this is it's amazing that this disappeared because I, I wonder if it was because there was backlash against it. I wonder if it didn't play well with modern audiences at the time. I don't know, but this is, this should have been played on PBS every year since 1964. Like they played crappy, like made by the telephone company minuet movies every year, on, <laughs> which I love. Let me just say, I love it, but they're crappy and they're, dated but i watch those every year and they were played every year on pbs this is the type of stuff we need playing on pbs no commercials solid art with a yep. message to be said that can hopefully lead to a better tomorrow and grudge is wondering about his tomorrow in this scene because yeah it's weird so he asks if he died before all this happens and the ghost is like i don't know the ghost gets real cagey about answers and they, they drop that. We don't ever figure it out. I kind of like that in a weird way because yeah. it's kind of like in the scope of this, what does your death even mean? Like, yeah. what does it matter? Who cares about like, it's the numbers game being thrown back at him in a weird way. Yeah. It's like the arithmetic of your one. You're a, death. You're a statistic, right? We're, we, we're doing the numbers here. You don't matter. They yeah. matter way more than you could matter at this moment. Your butler matters as the most important person in civilization, and he's lying gut shot dead on the side there. Yeah. Like, he's the last sane man in the world, which I've had that feeling too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we get the, you know, is this how it has to be, or is this just how it might be? Why? Really? Really good, yeah. He, and he's pawing at the cloak that uh, Rob yeah. uh, Shaw has been uh, wearing as the ghost here, and he kind of grabs at it. And you know the move if you see it. You know, if, in our line of work, John, you knew what was going to happen here. <laughs> it was done well that this was the transition. That this was the he's pawing at it, clutching at hope, the hope of changing the future, preventing this future from happening, and we awaken. In his study. For the sake of time, I want to move through this quickly because I have some thoughts about this ending. I feel like we need to talk about how this thing ends. So real quick, let's just, as you said, John, go quickly. The phone's off the line when we wake up, right? Yeah. Which was not the case when this whole sequence began. Mm -hmm. um, Grudge gets up. He kind of precards himself a little bit there, you know, tucks the shirt down and everything like that. And, um, starts um uh charles comes down says hi to him and he's like sir i didn't see you in your bedroom i went i fell asleep in there fred comes over he called fred the night before he kind of wanted to make amends with him 
was basically saying like so let's let's like let's let's highlight that like when fred comes over he's like yeah you called me at 3 a.m and he's like i guess i must have right so at some point during this psychotic break whatever it is that he experienced he called fred you could just imagine him kind of like sweat browed like in a stupor just calling fred half looking like not even looking at the phone or like acknowledge like half like just all about right and just saying fred the bare minimum for that conversation needed fred comes over they make amends. He's pretty much saying that we need people, you know, to talk and we don't need to build fences. We need to keep talking. And as he's talking about it, they're in the dining room and they hear as uh, is a uh, butler and the woman we saw in the future. We're going to see in a second. Um, Roberta, I believe her name was. I could be wrong there, but Ruby. she it was Ruby. Ruby. Thank you. Uh, she's in the kitchen, and they're listening to the choir of the delegates of the UN. Their children, the de- UN delegates, are singing uh, a song, a Christmas song, and he likes it. And he's he says, as long as the kids keep singing, that's pretty good. That's good, you know. Like, and that's like we were saying earlier. As long as people keep talking, right? And he then says goodbye to Fred. Fred kind of apologizes. Fred just kind of like stares at him as Grudge goes into the kitchen. So there's there's one exchange that I want to touch on in their conversation, right? Because they're talking about children. And Grudge says something along the lines of, if there are children, there will always be possibilities. Like as long as there are children, right, there's a generation that can solve this problem. And what Fred says to him is, if there are children, there have to be possibilities. Like we have to deal. It's so good. That's it. I mean, I, I mean, look, you're it's like, an easy I would, sell. I would get that like tattooed on myself. Just that, right, right, it's right. so good. Yeah, remember your audience here, folks. This is a easy sell to teachers, right? right like that's right. our whole shtick. All right, yeah. like we have to make the world better by making by help making it better for these kids that we are surrounded by that we see every day and all the kids of the world as our hope. Right. And grudge kind of just goes into the kitchen and they turn off the radio anticipating as he's standing there kind of next to it, anticipating he's like not going to jive with it. And he goes, he turns it back on and goes, I'm, I'm going to eat my meal in here. Like kind of like, I'm going to be with you guys. And that is a tie back to the original novella with how it's all about loneliness and cutting oneself off from the world. And again, making fences. Hot diggity dog. What an interesting ending. So here's the thing. (laughs) I, I do think that that's like the intention is this idea mm-hmm. that he's going to go in he's going to have his coffee in the kitchen, like connect with his staff, but they leave. She pours him coffee and then they leave and the credits just roll over him sitting and listening to the radio for the rest of the thing. So like, it's not like they sit down together. It's not like he's take Christmas off. I'll make breakfast for you. Like he's not making a connection with them. He's just like, I thought I would invade your space. 
and sit here. You, woman of color, come pour me, a white man, this coffee and then leave so I can listen to the radio. It just... It's such a, like... It doesn't quite stick the landing in a way that I wanted it to, I guess. Nothing is quite going to stick the landing from 1964. John, let's just be honest here. Dickens has his flaws if we don't forget, okay? Certainly, certainly. So I think... But the intention, I think, is there that the the setting is changing. Yeah. The extravagant <laughs> dining room is not his setting anymore. It's more intimate space. Exactly. Yeah. Like he's he's trying to connect back with humanity, with the people around him, the people that he saw and probably like saw in a different way for the first time ever, as not just individuals outside of the workplace, right? But like I don't know, like, he gave a good speech in that post-apocalyptic world, you know? Like, I probably would have a different opinion and want to be around that man a little bit more, you know? And maybe, I don't know, he acknowledged how close this is my family now. For better or worse, kind of weirdly or not weirdly, you know, that's undeniable. That's kind of weird uh, because they work for him. But, like, he has a family. I okay. I wondered if I wondered it like there's a personal connection missing. And I can't tell how much of this is like I am primed by just having watched so many different versions of a Christmas carol for him to have a more personal connection. But I'm wondering if like there's a version of this where before Fred comes in, there's a conversation he has with Charles about like Charles has a refugee cousin or something and he's looking for help and he's like I'm not going to do that and then in the end he chooses to helps a refugee you know what I mean like there's like a because the problem I'm having with the end of this is like aside from this like little gesture of like I'm going to go have coffee in the kitchen and be like among people even though he's not like there's nothing there's no onus on him to actually do anything except for change his his political philosophy Here's the thing. It's not just that gesture. Though I agree, there'd be something more traditional if there was that type of thing. What it is, is he's letting go of his son, too. It's, I'm not going to live in this extravagant... It's not just the 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 bounty of it, right? The, the gluttony of that space, right? That goes on. Like, that's probably also part of it. He doesn't want to be around the memory of that table in that scene. Like... Sure. Like that table is the gluttony of humanity in the face of the starving. Like that's probably like he might he might want to get rid of that table afterwards. Yeah. Like that table is his guilt. So he wants to be as far away from that table as possible. So th- good, there's yeah, a Yeah, no, that's actually a good read. That that is a very good read. It, it's it's not just I'm going to I hear what you're saying and definitely he's invading their space and that's an that's a idiot white guy mistake. That was my that was my knee jerk reaction, and I think that was just a that's a product of the time in which this thing was made. It's like people, the audience at the time wouldn't have looked at that and be like, "Oh, hmm, that's problematic." They would have just been like, "Well, yeah, okay, right." Well, I guess we'll eat at the dining room table now. No, yeah, like no, I get that. I think it's he's he's trying to move away from where he was and who he was, and it's a visual cue. It's subtle. Ron's being a little subtle there, but I, 
I as when the credits started rolling, when he sat down that little you know kitchen nook, um, which was very weird to see. Actually, that was kind of, that was that was not the most disturbing visual of this uh, special, but it was disturbing. That was like this like little 1960s kitchen nook, you know, like, I don't know. Just, it was like, ugh. I had a little uh, nook like that in my, in my last apartment before I got married. It was weird. It was like this weird, we called it the Hobbit hole. Cause it was this like tiny little alcove that you went into with like a little table. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So he sits down there though, but that was like the way it paced. And the way it laid out, by the time the credit hit, is the period on the piece. I was actually, I was personally satisfied, and I was like, there you go. Okay. So, uh, it, it, it stuck the landing for me. Yeah. I think I was waiting to figure out what what is what is the call to action for him. And I think that's the thing I didn't quite get was like, uh, what does he actually have to do? Because I feel like that's always pretty clear in A Christmas Carol. Like, what what... He's got a tiny Tim. You know what I mean? Like, and, and in this one, it's like, oh, he's got to stop. He's got to solve war. Well, that's not going to happen. So what does he have to do? And it's just like, is it, I'm just wondering if like maybe building the relationship between him and the butler a little more could have done something for me. I'm not sure. It's the mind. It's the change. Yeah. Mind. It's it's. The macro is the fact that he has influence that we've established that he is somebody of significance that could change a lot of policy with a phone call or two. Sure. So that's the big thing. Like Scrooge is like with his money, he's got to get changed so he can be charitable. And that's the big thing. The soul aspect of it is he needs to open himself up to the world again, not just for his own, like, very intimate friendships, Fred, the people in his life, his staff, but also like in the way he looks at the world, right? It is a sh- ever shrinking world. And he has to get on board with that and be a, a person of the 20th century as it was and, and, and help it. And as we all should, we all are soldiers in our own way of a war that has no real name, but we all fight it, right? And we all have little battles and little victories and little defeats, and we're all fighting it constantly. And he is changing sides in that war, even if he doesn't quite know it, that he's now going to look for the needs of the many and in a different light. And I think that's... While but while remembering the few, you know, and I think that's that's the other aspect of that, like Star Trek, quote people don't understand. Like you're not not acknowledging the struggle there between us, them, the haves, the have-nots, all that. You are. It's I don't know. He's changed. He has changed. I'm kind of rambling now, but he's changed. I I think you've changed my mind. I think you convinced me. I think you brought me around on this. That's pretty wild. <laughs> it's it's a it's solid, man. Like yeah. this it's it and it's actually the perfect way to do a Christmas Carol sequel where yeah. it's a little bit it's a little bit of a downer. It's a little bit more of a that was nice. Are you ready it's for subdued. your dude? Yeah. Ready for your reverse dessert? Here you go. Broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> like and I hope to one day find something as adequate 
to like this is equal in my opinion honestly to the novella i think like dude for what it's saying and what it's like i i don't think like ghosts of girlfriends past right took a different subject and did a good job with it i think we could both say that it wasn't on the level of dickens (laughs) right (laughs) No, I, I think I feel pretty safe saying that Ghosts of Girlfriend's Past is not on the same level as Charles Dickens, James. I feel like, I don't feel like that's a controversial take, personally. But this. I see what you're saying. But but, th- but, but maybe maybe Dickens, I don't know. I mean, but I will say that you have, like, I don't know if it's the Alistair Sims version, right? I just rewatched that. By the way, side note, audience, over the span of Christmas Eve to Oxing Day early morning, like 12.05 at night, right? Christmas night. I watched the Alistair Sims Christmas Carol. I watched uh, the Disney Christmas Carol with Mickey and Scrooge McDuck. And I watched at midnight, Christmas night into Boxing Day. I watched A Muppet's Christmas Carol pretty solid trilogy okay i would have liked to have gotten seymour hicks in there if i could have but i just seen him in the silent one so i thought i would give give alistair some love but like i will find the version that goes along with this and like i don't know if it's the alistair sim one that's not a bad choice actually but like there is something to go along with this to make like a really great trilogy of a christmas carol like some other version that is taking a look at it from a different point of view, a different topic, a different thing, a different progressive movement, a vibe, um, and tackling it. I, I, I'm so. This instills in me a lot of vibes, and while it's depressing as all hell, the ending of cha- that even somebody like Grudge could change that covenous old sinner that he is. It, it, it's, it, it gives me the Christmas vibes and feels. It's another Christmas carol. Wow. Um, that's it. Oh, pray with it sail those ships all three on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. Oh, pray with it sail those ships all three on Christmas Day in the morning. Well, Jan, what's getting your Christmas turkey? My Christmas turkey. I won't be surprised if we have the same one. Yeah, it's going to be the same one. Uh, <laughs> my Christmas turkey is going to specifically go to uh, Christmas present listing off the statistics. That okay. specific moment of that scene. I think it's the strongest moment in the piece. The the turnaround on him, the character turn of, of Christmas present going from being kind of like, like a funny, like combatively joking to being like, all right, mother effer, here we go. And like just his diatribe there. Um, it was, it was really like, it was moving to me in like a, I felt like I needed to go do something about what he was saying. And he was talking about the world in 1964. Like 
it, it was really it really landed for me and i think it did the exact thing that i always want christmas present to do which is leave scrooge absolutely no out to right. to flay him and 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 leave him bare to the elements and to expose the to expose the callousness in every single one of his viewpoints so effectively. And I think I've seen this guy and like maybe one other ghost of Christmas present really nail it ever. What's great about the, the raw numbers, right? The arithmetic, right? It's kind of like the opening of like the, the Cape for like ignorance and what, right? Mm -hmm. It's that the, it's the fulfillment of ignorance, right? It's mm -hmm. with the knowledge of that ignorance given a sword to stab at it's because it's wanting. And it's just, he's laying into him and it's, yeah, that's pretty. I love that turn. His face is so, you know, I don't want to say they don't make them like that anymore, but like, like, there's just you 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 get certain looks and beats from certain actors of a certain generation, right? I kind of a sucker for that like 1960s Batman TV show type of eyes and like touch angles and like costumes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Like, like it's all there. It's like right on my wheelhouse. Like this was beautiful. Uh, how about you? What gets your turkey? Well, John, we should have just said we're both going for the Ghost of Christmas present, but I will highlight another beat. It was what I kept on talking about, the tablecloth rip. It is, the portions are too big. It's like the ghost is the same ghost from the previous novella, right? And he's over it. Yeah. Like 2,000 years and this is what you've done. I was talking to Scrooge a hundred plus years ago, and I thought you guys were just about to turn the corner, and I was cheerful. And look at where your gluttony has gotten you. Like it is. It was the it was maybe the best ghost of Christmas present I have ever seen. That is really highlighting for me the way in which this is a sequel to a christmas carol in which the right. ghosts do like because there's very little like retread of story beats outside of like fred and marley it's right. like no his experiences are totally different and the way they have to approach him is different because his problem is different and it yeah. it does it in a way that i think spirited failed to do because spirited is like yeah it's a sequel to a christmas carol but also a christmas carol exists in this world and also weirdly all of your life events line up really well with a christmas carol because we're doing a christmas carol like this is a better version of what they're doing <coughs> in that movie where it's like oh yeah we do this to some guy every year this year it happens to be this arms dealer who thinks about that isolationism is like the way forward here's how we play out the past present future move for that guy it's almost though like it's like a spell in a way. Like yeah. the name is Fred, the name is Marley, your attitude is this, and you have X going on. Like it's almost like it's, it's like it's magical that it happened. And you're right, present is completely in my mind the continuation of that character, one 
century plus later, which is amazing. Yeah. Like, like it's like if Dickens could commentate on it almost. Like in a lot of ways, it's kind of this feels like what Dickens would say, like in response to like everything. Oh my gosh. Um, so it was really good. But John, not everything is great. What is getting your Christmas coal here? Okay, I have to call an audible because you changed <laughs> mine. No, legit. I was going to call out the ending and my my feeling initially that it, I felt like it didn't stick the, the landing. But I think that you pointed out some really critical things that changed my perspective. Number one, like they establish at the beginning that he has a lot of sway and influence. Right. right. He and clearly he's going to use that sway and influence the kind of removing himself from like that, that large, empty, decadent table to the little like humble kitchen table as a symbolic move of like stepping away from his consumptive nature and just going to listen to the children singing these Christmas songs. Like, I think you did a lot in the way that you kind of see it and explaining that to break that down for me. That's not actually an answer to your question. That is what I was going to say. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that (laughs) in that case, I have to give it to like one or two things in the Hiroshima scene that like took me out of it. So like, I think I'm going to give it to the do you speak English line when he asked the doctor, do you speak English? And then the doctor says in literally like the most American accent ever. Yes, I speak it. And then they go on to pretend as though he's got like a little bit of an accent. It's just one of those things where I'm like, that feels like 1964 to me. Like that's a moment that took me out of it. It's so minor because you forget it almost immediately. And if I wasn't watching this to like review it and look for things to talk about, I don't even know that it would have clocked for me necessarily. Right. Um, but I think it's got to be that. I think that's what I have to give my coal to in this case. I'm so you're giving your coal to. Sorry, re- refresh my memory just real quick again. The the, the writing choice to be like uh, asking the Japanese doctor. Do you yeah, speak English? yeah, and the doctor yeah, being yeah, like, yeah. Yes, I, I do. Sorry, speak English. that it's hard to kind of. Yes. Um, I would put it on something similar. I would talk about the... Um, look. I'm also going to go over some stuff in the Hiroshima scene. I think it's hard to get that done perfect, right? Some things there... Like, they look, they don't do some horrible things that would have been quote-unquote bunny rabbit ears you know acceptable at the time like they don't do yellow face or anything like that in the sequence thank god but like i don't know there's just i feel like there could have been a little bit more done with that scene like just I, I think there could have been a, just a little bit more time given to it overall like just a, I, I i don't know where exactly I feel like it's a tightrope. They they got across the rope. They could have done it maybe just a little bit clean. You know what it is? It's the vibes I'm getting from like the boys part of the sequence with grudge. Like that just, I think they're trying. And again, we talked about that, like raw, like the general, like grudge is trying to really make it like I did a really good thing there. Like I, I did, I, I did a John Wayne, you know, type of kid up moment there and it's like 
like Green Beret. You're what we're fighting this thing for. You know, it's like, no, it's like, no, nah, that didn't sit well with me. It's not supposed to, but like, th- I guess that's my call. Like, grudge it. Like, they're like, yeah, I don't know. It's hard. I, I have very few complaints with this, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, literally mine, like, I don't even know that it's a flaw as much as a thing that I found really funny at a moment that I probably shouldn't have been laughing at anything. But it was just the 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 juxtaposition and then like the guy going on to like have this kind of like vaguely foreign sounding affectation. Yeah, like little things like there, like little things that maybe don't feel authentic or something like that. Like sure. A little bit more effort there, maybe a little bit more influence from actual people from like i don't know how many people were there actually giving like first-hand accounts of hiroshima or something there right you know? like right who knows how much i mean i'm sure research was done I'm, i would i doubt there wasn't any research done for this clearly there was but you know there there can always be more do you feel like do you feel like this ends up in your christmas future or is this uh it's staying in the past this is 100% in my Christmas future. Um, I will be watching this. I'm probably going to have to watch this with my, not have to, but like I'm going to have to make my brother watch this because he's going to need to see this. I'm going to show this to anybody like that is like, hey, you want to sit down and like watch like the best sequel ever to a Christmas Carol? Sit down. And I. <sighs> It is. If ever there was a reflective piece from the like, like with a Christmas Carol, right, commentating on the Industrial Revolution as it's going on, the critic making accurate criticisms of it in the moment, right. This is exactly the same thing, middle of nineteen sixty four America. With the UN just being established, the Cold War is getting underway into its third decade. Things are getting tense. And this is somebody commenting on where we are, where we've been, and what is very likely to happen. John, is this going to be in your future? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, it. So we watched we watched three different versions of A Christmas Carol this season. Right. Yeah. We watched, you know, the silent film version, which did nothing necessarily spectacularly more an interesting just piece of kind of like film in in the history of this thing that we spent all this time talking about. Right. Right. But not not like something to write home about. Right. Foundational in some ways, I'm sure. Stingiest Man in Town largely pretty forgettable. I'm sure it's like a favorite for some person out there. I it was just a musical version of a Christmas Carol. That's not as good as other musical versions of a Christmas Carol, right? Had a couple mm-hmm. moments. That's it. This was wholly unique and coming from a creator who I really admire quite a bit. I think Rod Serling is a person in kind of entertainment who I think used his platform and used his voice to try to make the world better in really meaningful ways and also created just like some of the most like kind of original stories and whatnot. Um, And I think that he managed to do a thing, which I've always wanted to see someone do since we've been doing this podcast, which is to reinvent a Christmas Carol, but like for a different kind of Scrooge and not just 
transplant the story beats into a different place. Like, like we talked about, we've watched other modernizations and every other modernization we've watched either acknowledges the existence of a Christmas Carol or like follows the exact same plot beats and character setups from a Christmas Carol. Like this took the idea of a person visited by the past, present and future of their philosophical viewpoint to challenge their harmful view of the world in a really, really unique way. And then just like really drop kicked you with some powerful moments. Um, I'm rambling because it's just like I'm I'm exhausted having talked through this and like thought through it. But it is something really special. And I think people I agree. I think that people have slept on it a little bit and that it, it deserves like a, a a chance to be kind of a, a classic. I may be a prisoner of the moment. I'm very guilty of that sometimes. I hype up either my anger of something or my pleasure of something, you know, my enthusiasm. Yeah, goes to eleven a lot of times. Not that this is my favorite thing, but like with Rescuers Down Under, where it's like <laughs> a piece of art that I am an advocate for, that I will go to bat for and say, no, this needs to be appreciated on a grander scale. That is this. This is it's. It's like 12 Angry Men. Like the, the very similar vibes. Like, and you're saying so much with so little. Like a cast of, I mean, besides the crowd scene, right, of the future, a cast of what, a dozen people? Sure. If, if, that, if that, yeah. If, if, not, if not less than half a dozen, right? Honestly. And then you get that amazing crowd shot. It's an all-timer Christmas Carol. It's an all-time political progressive film. I don't. I haven't seen something really, maybe ever, that gets a, a message across so. And it might sound like a criticism, but it's not because you need to do this to get the masses on your side. Such a neatly designed pill for a lot of people to swallow Mm -hmm. and grudges opinions are not unique we've said that before these were commonplace ideas at the time these were if you had anything but praise for hiroshima you were seen as a pinko commie bastard you were some sort of freak and here sterling is taking a big weight on his shoulders and trying to put a candle not only up to that but to so many other things here and again sticks the landing i don't know how he does it in this 90 minute movie 40 uh, one hour 40 minutes something like that isn't that an hour and 26 minutes isn't that crazy it goes to show you friends that it's that it doesn't matter you don't need like a, a 10-hour documentary, right, to get your point across, to make a message or political agenda clear. If you if you work on it, you write it good, you can ninja the crap out of it, and it'd be great. 
Um, yeah, I'm not. I was gonna say, well, we're about to ninja the crap out of the ending of this podcast, and I, just, <laughs> I couldn't I think, commit to it. <laughs> no, I think I honestly, I mean, we're exhausted because it, I think we're almost left speechless. Like, I, I, are we putting it in the Hall of Fame? Oh, this is this is a Hall of Famer for sure. So, yeah. what was in the Hall of Fame? We did the Hall of Fame for something else before for Jacob Barley is dead. What was it? It was was it was it something to do with George C. Scott? Was George C. Scott put in the Hall of Fame or something like that? Often, we'll, we'll have to go back through and listen. Do an award show. Okay. Well, I'm just saying right now. This. What's the official title again? Uh, Carol for Another Christmas. Carol for Another Christmas. She's officially in the Jacob Marley Hall of Fame. Oh, A yeah. whole movie. Whole movie. Yeah. All timer. Double thumbs up. Triple thumbs up. I don't know where the other thumb's coming from. Maybe it's a quadruple thumbs. Okay, maybe it's all of us. Now, now you get you know, like five thumbs up. Now I'm really worried, but like, there's a lot of thumbs up. (laughs) Well, James, uh, how many thumbs up can people give us if they are enjoying the podcast? They can leave us a five star, five star, five star, five star, five star, or thumbs up review. A do, a do, a do, and do, a. Please, 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 please. I know you had to put up me singing there for a second. I apologize for that. But please leave us a five-star review. Um, just so more people can find out about this movie, actually. Yeah. And maybe yeah, from honestly. this podcast. <laughs> like, if not for us, for Rod Sterling, okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like this, this, this spiritual sequel... To a Christmas Carol, Doctor Strange Love, and Twilight Zone. Like, like this is like an old annual issue, like of comic books. They would do like a big, like 90-page annual issue. This is like an annual issue of like the Twilight Zone. Like, just like, oh, like a Christmas special. And it's amazing. Leave us a five-star review so more people can find out about cool art like this. And other people can find it out too. Maybe they like something like this that you like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you got thoughts, feelings, opinions uh, about this particular version or any version or the stupid things we say when we talk about them, feel free to reach out at uh, uh, Jacob Marley is dead at gmail.com. You can hit us up at Marley's dead pod on Twitter for the time being. Um, and you can find the podcast on Facebook as well. Um, reach out through any of those mediums and and I will respond to you within like a relative amount of time. Um, my apologies to anyone who reached out like over the summer when we're working on the other podcast. And uh, I, I didn't see your emails until we were kind of getting closer to coming back to work on, on Jacob Marley for the holidays. But um, I will be a little bit more diligent now that I know people actually reach out. Um, uh, I have some thank yous. Thank you to Milo Newman for our, our awesome cover art. Um, thank you to Ben DeVries for our opening, closing, and interstitial music. Thank you to uh, the folks at That's Not Canon Productions who host us. Um, if you're enjoying what we are doing, you can go and check out numerous, numerous, really, really excellent indie podcasts through their network. Um, they have been kind enough to host us 
even though over the last couple of years we've only released like this is our third episode in three years or so or in four years so um it's kind of the nature of doing a holiday a holiday season podcast and this is going to be it for us for for this holiday season um we'll definitely be coming back with more jacob marley is dead uh you know, in the Christmas of 2024. And um, hopefully this is the year where my pie in the sky idea of maybe doing a couple of episodes for Christmas in July uh, will pan out. I have some thoughts about how to do that. Well, John, if we pace out just right, Frodo lives will be ending fellowship just as we hit summer. So then Christmas in July, Bebba. <laughs> love it. Love it. That'll be our, our tweener when we finish that. Uh, speaking of Frodo Lives, if you are enjoying what we do here, if you like listening to our kind of commentary and you don't want to just listen to us around the holidays, we do have another podcast. It's called Frodo Lives. It is a Lord of the Rings read-through podcast where uh, each month we're reading a couple of chapters of uh the lord of the rings by J.R.R. tolkien and then we're we're having a discussion so we just wrapped up our discussion on the council of elrond and uh, as soon as this episode of jacob marley is dead drops in our feed we'll be going back to read the next chapter of that we would love 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 to have you along for that ride as well um there's a lot of overlap in style and and commentary and um we're enjoying putting that one out almost as much i think as we enjoy jacob marley is dead this is kind of our our special baby this one this is the mothership this is this is the original this is the, no other is there's imitators but this is the first one and man do i love talking about a christmas carol i think yeah. i i forgot how much i love just watching it like all the time I, I watched it three times in the past day, John. Like, honest and true. And I could have watched, again, the Seymour Hicks version again. I could have watched maybe Scrooge. I don't know. Like, I would have watched, maybe not. But, like, I would have watched something again. Like, I, I was if there was more hours in the day, it's, it's one of the best stories ever written. I was and, just saying the same thing to my wife the other day. This is, like, one of the best pieces of literature ever. And it really is a gift that keeps on giving. Right. It's like all of the greatest stories ever told. You can tell it again and again from different angles and get the nectar from that story. The tr the real truth of what is being said in that story in a different way. And it's it's done here in the most extreme, not extreme, I guess Goes a Girlfriend's Past would be the most extreme change, but like a, a very completely new story and structure and message but within the same spirit and hope of uh, the original. I love it. Yeah. Well, and the biggest thank you of all to you, our listeners, who keep coming back. Um, and until the next time uh, we are all together on the podcast feed, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.